What is up, wrestling fans, and welcome to another edition of 2001, A Wrestling Odyssey. This is our July edition, and joining me on this journey back in time, as always, is Robert DeFelice. I am Robert DeFelice. How are you, Callum? It's really hot. Yeah. It's uh, the summer, I guess that's to be expected, but it's it's too warm. Is it warm where you are? Yes, it's uh, very hot over here. It's a very cruel summer, you might say. Yes, um... It was a pretty cruel summer back in uh, 2001 as well, but for a very varied number of reasons. But we'll be covering all of that in detail. Uh, I guess we start with the perennial question that we've been asking for the last few months, which is what the hell is happening with WCW? And yeah, God, what is happening with WCW, Calum? Well, we finally got an answer to the question, what is happening with WCW this year? And what is happening is, in many people's eyes, the most missed opportunity in the history of professional wrestling but it all starts somewhere and it starts with the july 2nd episode of monday night raw which so we're going to do a bit slightly different than how we've done recently we're going to be jumping around a little bit from reviews to the news then back to the reviews again so hopefully the uh, changing format doesn't uh throw you off too much when you join us back in this journey but we've got to do a little bit of housekeeping to remember what the situation was back in june so essentially the idea was that WCW would take over Monday Night Raw. That was kind of the idea going into Invasion. Uh, the news uh, this month during the um, in the Wrestling Observer, they decided they added a little bit more clarity to it during the uh, month of July in the idea that the plan was supposed to be that Linda and Vince McMahon, Vince McMahon and Linda, were going through a divorce at the time, on on-screen divorce, should I say. And, yeah, they're still uh, happily married today in 2019. Yep. And the idea would be that they would split their assets 50-50 in the divorce and that Linda would take Raw as part of the settlement. And she would give Raw to Shane McMahon and Shane would, get WCW, would make it WCW Raw. Wait a minute. You know, they really don't let old ideas die because they basically did exactly that just later on in the year when... They said that uh, Shane and Stephanie stole their WWF stock to a consortium. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And then there's also the, well, you'd be even more interested to know that they also were planning to do a draft. Really? And it would be a mixture of WWF and WCW superstars going from one side to the other. So SmackDown, Vince McMahon's WWF SmackDown would have a mixture of former WCW stars and WWF guys. And Raw would also have that mixture as well. Do you think they were better off the way they just did it, where it's Raw and SmackDown, but they're both under the WWF banner? Or do you think giving it that WCW name would have helped differentiate the shows? Well, as as we'll probably come to discuss in the um, going forward in this episode, I think probably staying clear from the WCW name as much as possible is probably for the best. Yeah. It was just... Well, well let's go into it, because we go straight into the... Um, July 2nd, 2001, Raw number 423 from the Tacoma Dome. If you want to see this instance for yourself and you haven't like gone back and watched 2001 shows uh, on your WWE Network, the newly formatted WWE Network, we have to say. Um, uh, I really like that. You know, I think it's a good-looking new format. It's very sleek. I'm sure Tony will want to cover that more in detail in the uh, hot tags. I'm sure he'll hate it. <laughs> yeah, he, he, they did move a lot around, so he's going to not like it. Yeah, 
But if you want to go check this episode out, um, you want to start from about one hour, 15 minutes into the broadcast. Actually, I'll tell you right now, with the new format of WWE Network, just type in Buff Bagwell versus Booker T and it'll come right up. Yeah, I know. And you'll probably be the only person searching for that match nowadays. Because <laughs> I know after watching it, I won't be going back anytime soon. <laughs> but um, so it's I, I watched from the point where uh, Jim Ross and Paul Heyman are essentially leaving the announce table. And Paul Heyman specifically says that I'm not uh, don't hold us responsible or the WWF responsible for what you're about to see, which <laughs> which I feel was a, a fairly um, loaded message. I think he may have understood what was about to happen better than most. Okay. Uh, so I want to ask you a little bit about the um, production that they decided to put together for the WCW like new look show. Okay. So so essentially they added new lighting. They put the WCW logo in the background. They did all the pyro shooting out of it. Did you feel? Did it make you feel like it was a different show that was about to take place? It definitely made me feel like something different was about to take place. It seems like they didn't put too much into what they were going to do, and uh, you can hear the crowd immediately chanting "boring" and they're not feeling this at all. But I like I like the lighting setup more than what I think. WWF was doing at the time. Uh, I could care less for the revamped logo, that red WCW logo. I'm not a fan of it. No. I think it must have been the laziest thing WWF ever did. They probably just opened up Microsoft Paint and just scratched WCW and said, there's your logo. Um, I don't know. It's, it's weird because it's an anomaly. It's a one and done, so we can't talk about this too much but what? it might have caught on if they gave it a chance potentially but after this there was very little chance of them giving it a chance uh we talk about uh Shane McMahon comes out to the ring first uh to essentially welcome everyone to wcw which is immediately met with a significant number of boos despite the fact that shane has been a baby face for the last few months yeah i think that's why they made the switches that they would because you can't go on a WWF program and just be like, oh, well, we're, we're WCW and we're the baby faces here. So what happens is he announces special guest ring announcer Stacey Keebler and commentators for the show, Arn Anderson and Scott Hudson. Interesting. Most interesting people here in this whole scene are Buff Bagwell and Scott Hudson because you never see them again. No, it's it's a weird one. Scott Hudson was always being considered for the WCW commentary role if they were to bring back WCW as its own entity. They liked the fact that he was well behaved backstage, he was well mannered, he was he was like a good anchor point. But he wasn't Tony Schiavone. No, he wasn't Tony Schiavone, but I think Vince was very adamant with the fact that he didn't want Tony Schiavone to be his commentary guy. And I think at this point Tony didn't want to be associated with WCW. I what, do you think, what do you think about Double A as a color commentator? He was terrible. Yeah. Absolutely atrocious as a commentator. I'll, I'll come up with like a few gems that he came up with, but initially he wasn't the one who was meant to be the color commentator alongside Scott Hudson. That honor was supposed to go to Jerry the King Lawler. That would be very weird. Yes, the, the idea was supposed to be that Shane McMahon would bring back Jerry as like, oh, he got fired by... WWF, so he'll be brought back for WCW instead. And yeah, I think 
you might have, you would have been better off having Heyman just jump right in, into that role and have Vince do what he did later on and bring back Jerry. Potentially, but it was the idea that Heyman's gimmick was had been built up in the previous few months that he hated WCW. And there's also a long-running ha- fact that as an he ECW did. owner, he did hate WCW. Did. So I think it would have been a bit jarring. I know the King had no association with WCW, at least not for many decades at this point. But it's just the idea of him being different and the fact that he had been fired previously would be an idea of, oh yeah, Shane brings him back. But they couldn't sort out a deal because essentially King wanted his wife to be hired as well. And uh, that was not going to happen. So any agreement that was founded was immediately torn apart because of that. Well, good thing he's not very good with the whole marriage thing. No, and we'll find out that more even (laughs) further as we go into the plot tags. But um, uh, Nick Patrick was the referee as well, which I think... I think that was the worst choice they could have made as the referee, because I know Nick Patrick is very well known for his time in WCW. He's also known well known for his time in WCW for being a very incompetent referee. I well, think they should have just had Charles. Yeah, it should have been Charles Robinson. He was a much more likable figure, I think. Not that it, like, it's the referee who really gives a fuck, but Nick Patrick was immediately going to be met with a load of boos and condemnation. But unfortunately... A lot of the known WCW referees, uh, Pee Wee Anderson had already passed, I think, and so did uh, the other one, um, Brian Hildebrand. Yeah, I think it, obviously there, there weren't that many to choose from, I, I'll grant that side of things, but it was just a case of, you've got those two at the very least, and one of them is far better, far better suited for the job than the other, but... I guess they had plans in mind for Nick Patrick, as we'll find out when we talk about Invasion. But uh, I was going to say that um, William Regal and Tajiri came out to announce that Shane couldn't be involved in this match or shouldn't be around, and so he was escorted away by security. And this is the point on commentary that uh, Arne Anderson says that this moment is bigger than D-Day or the moon landing for professional wrestling fans. Well, poor Arne. Poor everybody in this situation. You have to try to make it sound that way, but clearly it's not bigger than the moon landing or bigger than a lot of other things that would happen later on that year. Yeah, so the match itself was Booker T defending the world, the WCW Heavyweight Championship against Buff Bagwell. Oh, we're going to talk a little bit about Buff Bagwell on this edition. Probably more than we'll ever talk about Buff Bagwell <laughs> Despite Again. the fact that we have a superstar scores out on Buff Bagwell. If you want to check that out as well, that's is he, somewhere is deep he the in the archives. I believe he's the lowest scored. I believe so. And you'll find <laughs> and I think we can safely assume why after this. Um Buff Bagwell you know was they stuck true to the WCW tradition of just obscene pyro yeah. for no reason. I, I do appreciate the fact that Buff Bagwell's theme music is still available on the WWE network. Because it is just so, it's so him. <laughs> and I don't know if that's good or bad, but it's just so Buff Bagwell. I think the key is around the 99-2000 era, they had redone a lot of the themes and they were owned, I believe, by Bagwell himself. And when they bought out WCW, they got the latter half of the WCW theme songs. Like, you can't hear... uh 
like Raven's theme songs from when he was in WCW, but you can hear this stuff. So I think we talked about it like in an early edition. I can't remember the month exactly, but we talked about the fact that Buff Bagwell was not very high on their priority list as somebody that they wanted to sign from WCW. But eventually they decided to get around to it because at the end of the day, Buff Bagwell at the time was 31 years old. He was still a young guy. He'd obviously been in WCW for well over a decade. And it was like part of the fixture at that point. And so I, I can't really say that it was the worst. I mean, there were worse choices than Buff Bagwell to fight for the World Heavyweight Championship, but there were significantly better choices as well. Who would you have had in this role? Well, we'll talk about it later because there's an episode of SmackDown afterwards where they did Booker T versus DDP. And it yeah. should have been it should have been Di- Diamond Dallas Page was the obvious choice for this role. See, but I would have brought Diamond Dallas Page in like this. If you would have done Oh shit, guys, it's DDP and Booker T on Raw without the uh, precursor of The Undertaker stalker nonsense. Then I think that would have been really well received. Yeah. And then there's also the argument that there's many people that could have given a better match than this. I mean, say what you will about Mike Awesome, he would have given a better match than this. Lance Storm would have been a better choice to deliver a match than this. They're obviously not huge names, but... Then again, who was really that they had hired on contract? At least Buff Bagwell had just been in the ring with Goldberg earlier that year. Yeah, and um, that really helped out. Uh, but the I th- I think when we talk about the match, I would say that it's not one of the it's not the worst match of all time, but it's very obvious very early on that Buff Bagwell is in no condition to compete in in the, at this sort of level because within the first two or three minutes of this match, he's applying rest hold after rest hold after rest hold. It's, it's weird because that was just sort of the style. Like, this looks like a very buffalo match to me. Yeah, and maybe that was part of the reason why the crowd completely turned against it, because within minutes... And I would probably be on the stance of thinking that the crowd is going to shit on it no matter how good the match was. Right. But I think that it was the idea that... The match was also very slow, very plodding. Bagwell was in no condition to compete at that sort of level. Booker T didn't look at his best. And so they started just trying, this match sucks, boring. What was the last WWF match before this? Uh, I wish I'd come back to check on that one. I didn't, I didn't watch the previous part of the show. So you might have to do some, a little bit of digging uh, to find it out. I'm going to just dig around real quick. Yeah. I'll, I'll follow him a bit more of the match. So, essentially, there's a few little bits of pieces where there's a few botches, like Booker T does his spin kick, falls over in the process of doing it. Uh, the, there's crowd trouble in the during the match as well, because not only are they booing and saying the match is awful, there's also many of them that are heading for the exit to this point. There was um, It was very obvious that you could see fans in the background were staring off to the uh, right-hand side of the screen, and that's because there were fights breaking out in the crowds as well. Because I assume there were some pro WCW people that were getting annoyed that some fans were leaving and so they were starting some fights. Just people weren't paying attention to the match and those that were weren't enjoying it. Uh, Booker T started a comeback but was cut off multiple times by Bagwell just putting him back into some really lame rest holds. He had the um, scissor kick and then the spinner And then as soon as he spin- does the spinner you hear the crowd just light up with excitement because... 
the heels, Stone Cold Steve Austin and Kurt Angle are storming the ring to end this World Heavyweight Championship match with disqualification, <laughs> and the crowd couldn't be happier about it. Well, yeah, because, quite frankly, the WBF superstars, they were superstars. Mm. I think it was just, um, so they start beating the hell out of Booker T, Bagwell starts joining in as well, so they're all just, it's one of those instances where... I think I've heard it described this way before. It's the it's a it looks like a mixed tag to me featuring uh, Jeff Hardy, Lita, Big Show, and Trish. Ah, oh, so probably a lot more exciting, or maybe got a better rating than this did. Uh, but it was just the idea of like this is a too long as well, so it just made the whole thing even like less effective because. They were just beating him up, and then they have to beat him some more, and then beat him some more, and then beat him some more. They can't just... They have to always extend this thing out too much. Yeah. Uh, they cut backstage, because I didn't want to miss this part of it out. Uh, there had been an ongoing storyline throughout the show of Tory Wilson and Vincent Mann. Essentially, the idea that Tory wanted to jump ship to the WWF, become a WWF superstar, and she was going to seduce Vincent Mann to do so. Not that Vince would have any problem with being seduced by Tori Wilson. But... This leads to one of the funniest Vince McMahon diva stories I've ever seen. And I think it actually plays out on the following Smackdown, where she actually takes his pants off and he opens his eyes and Linda's there. No, that's the end of this I mean... one. Oh, is it? That's what happens in this show. Yeah. <laughs> so so what what happened is essentially they were constantly interrupted during the meeting when they were trying to essentially make out and all that other stuff. So they've been interrupted by Austin, they're interrupted by Kurt Angle, they're interrupted by Perry Saturn at one point. And then eventually they head down to the laundry room where Tori strips Vincent Man. Vince says that he can't wait for her to meet Mr. Matt Daddy. Which is <laughs> Wait, this is how they literally ended the episode of Monday Night Raw. Yeah. So, oh my god. Well, well, they didn't. They didn't. Well, there was one thing after this one, but the idea was that he turns around, Tory's left with his pants down his ankles, and staring at him is Linda McMahon, with her hands on her hips, just like staring him out for <laughs> being. More so Man. thinking, what am I doing? Who, yeah. who did I marry? Why am I here? Vince goes into an absolutely hilarious rant about how Linda doesn't trust him and why did you think that I was... Why are you even down here? What are you doing here? He falls over into the cardboard boxes. It's it's pretty hilarious, really. And then, you know, you got to give them credit. They are funny as a family. They should have been done... They should have done sitcoms. Yeah. So, and then we cut after this to more beating down of Booker T. He gets just beaten down backstage and then thrown outside. Uh, Buff Bagwell celebrates with Austin and Angle, who then beat the hell out of him and then throw him outside as well. So, no joining up for Buff Bagwell with WWF. It's just a case of WWF clearing, getting rid of the trash of WCW, and the crowd absolutely loved it. So this, as I'm sure you can imagine caused Vincent Mann to blow a gas- gasket backstage. Uh, he hated the match, he hated the commentary, he hated the reactions, he hated the presentation. Everything about it, he just absolutely loathed from top to bottom. It's just, well, yeah. you know, it just seems kind of like what the rest of the year seemed like. 
They wanted to cheer Stone Cold. They did not want to. They did not want to cheer Vince. You know, they they were happy as shit that Vince was embarrassed, but they wanted nothing to do with Booker T. No. Um. WWE.com have an interview, have a um an article on this, which they titled the uh, most awkward match ever between yeah. uh, Booker T and Buff Bagwell. Uh, Jim Ross talks about the fact that sort of the, the match is abnormally bad and seemingly ill-timed due to the crowd reaction. Booker T places a lot of the blame for the match on uh, Buff Bagwell's doorstep, basically saying that he he wasn't in a position that... He said that Buff essentially wasn't prepared for that stage and he wasn't capable of carrying him to a good match. So is Booker T admitting that he needed to be carried? Or is Booker T saying that he was not at the time, capable of carrying somebody to a good match. He's saying he, he talks about the fact that he'd never faced a crowd with that kind of reaction before, like a crowd that is just completely against what was being presented in front of them, which, considering the fact that he worked in WCW between 99 and 2001, I find it very hard to believe. But essentially it's the idea that the crowd was so against it and he knew that Buff was in poor ring condition. And so... He knew that he was facing an uphill battle, and he doesn't feel like he rose to the occasion like he needed to. It's it's really it's unfortunate to me that certain people didn't get a chance again. Like Buff Bagwell sucks, but Buff Bagwell was at least more WCW than as we'll go on to see later in the year, Christian or like Test. Mm-hmm. You know, I think you could have had a lot of fun with just initially doing. The WCW WWF war. Instead, every WWF guy just took a shit on WCW guys, yeah. and they ended up resorting to WWF talent to get the alliance angle over. So Buff Bagwell, in the in meantime, if you want to like hear his reaction to the match or an interview that he gave about it, he's uh, I guess unsurprisingly more defensive about his conditioning and his ability. Uh, he blames a lot of it on the fact that the match took place in Tacoma, Washington. Yeah, fuck Tacoma, Washington. Because it's a city that WCW hadn't visited in 11 years up to that point, and he said that the match should have taken place next week, because next week they were in Atlanta. Well, uh, alright, I'm going to give Buff Bagwell that. It probably would have been better, but I, let's put it this way, you put this match up in front of anybody, it's not going to go great. I'll grant you that, but Atlanta, Georgia would have Received it a whole lot greater. And that's, oh, yeah, that's very WWF, though. To just be like, you know, this would make sense. But we're going to do it a week early just to cut the legs out from underneath it. Mm. Um, And then he talks about other stuff like um, a backstage incident that he had with Shane Helms, which left him having to get have stitches because they got into an altercation behind the scenes. Essentially, it was the idea of Buff Bagwell has always had a reputation as being difficult to work with behind the scenes and was very uh, prone to complain and had a bad attitude believed that he the hype surrounding him very readily uh, and Shane Hills would basically call him out on it saying that the only reason why he's where he is because he took a load of steroids and so they just got into a brawl about it pretty standard procedure in 2001 WWF yeah and uh, poor Poor Buff Bagwell, it did not get easier for him. No, we'll definitely go into that side of things, but essentially this overwhelming reaction just changed 
Vincent Mann's opinion of making Raw WCW just on a dime, essentially. It was pretty cut and dry that they couldn't do two brands and promote WCW as a big deal again based on this reaction. And so, I mean, do you think that's unfair, going from one just one match on one show? Only a little, but it was a pretty bad match. Yeah, and I think it was just the idea of they had to, tr- they felt at least they had to build up WWE a little bit by launching more of a real invasion side of things. And I think the bigger issue is that, and I know it's obviously hindsight is 2020 and all that other stuff, but it was clear this was the wrong time to do an invasion angle or to bring WCW back. They really kind of should have put it on ice for a little while. What would you, hindsight 2020, how would you have done it? Like, what would you have done? How would you have started this? How would I have started it? I would have waited two years. You would have waited two years? I would have waited until at least Goldberg's contract was ready. And I would have... Listen, you needed just four or five people. You didn't need, like, everyone to be a top star. But I think you needed... You needed Bischoff. You needed Goldberg. You needed probably Kevin Nash and Scott Hall and possibly Hulk Hogan. And you needed Ric Flair. And if you could get Sting as well, that'd be great. But obviously Sting has didn't join WWE until 2015 or whatever it was. So I think they could have gotten Sting had they waited. Probably. They could have gotten Sting because we'll talk about it. I know I know it's not this month, but we'll talk about why Sting didn't even want to go. But it's just the idea of if they wanted to do it properly and have the big names, they had to wait until those contracts were up. And at the end of the day, if they don't have the star power backing them up, it's just the like dregs of WCW fighting up. It's not really WCW against WWF. It's WWF against the, who was left, essentially. And that's never going to draw as well as if you can get the big names in. And they really should have realised that. I know they wanted to capitalise it early because they wanted to use it as part of the Shane McMahon Vince angle. And so they did that and... They had to have. They wanted to jump the gun with the idea of Shane buying WCW, but from that point on, I think even just from that point where they did the thing of Vince has to proclaim about how he's purchased WCW and all of that stuff, that was jump. That was that just made the whole thing. It wasn't going to work from that point on. I think. Do you think they could have done? Okay, Shane buys it. They do the WrestleMania match. Shane goes away. And then two years later, you kick out the WCW thing? I think it would have been difficult because it's quite jarring with the idea that he owns the company now, but now we're not going to talk about it for however long. And Shane's going to go away. Because they didn't want Shane to go away because Shane was popular. Shane was good babyface at the time. And I just, I just think they could have... Realistically, the person that should, should have come in as leading an invasion of WCW was Eric Bischoff. Yeah, I think I think they could have told a story potentially of the idea of Shane's purchased WCW just to piss off his dad. Like he has no plans of doing anything with WCW, at least not in the short term. But he has the name WCW, and that Vince doesn't have it, and that's the the big story about it. It's just the fact that he owns the name WCW. Vince can't use WCW because Shane has it instead, 
and that's an end to it. And then maybe even like a year later, when you can get a couple of people in, then you can say, oh, well, I've just brought in, I've decided to take advantage of the fact that I own WCW. I brought in somebody who I'm sure you're familiar with, Vince, brings in Eric Bischoff, and then you're off to the races a little bit more. That would be so much better. Yeah. But and we got the, this. Yeah. And in the meantime, you could have had some of the former WCW guys show up on WWF and just wrestle with WWF guys just looking for jobs. And then they all turn their back on Vince and join up with a new coalition, along with some like guys that would make sense for, to join WCW, like maybe Jericho, Benoit. Guerrero. Guerrero, people of that ilk. ilk. And then maybe a couple of other people, but I it's difficult to say because I can't say with complete certainty that I would have done the invasion better than they did, because I'm pretty sure I couldn't. But I know what they did was wrong. I know enough to know what they did was wrong. I think it was just a matter of trying to rush. Like, we have this property, let's do something with it. Because they were having a bad year as it was. Like, let's not pretend that Judgment Day was great. Or that, you know backlash and the idea of the two-man power trip well i loved that idea as a kid i can look back on it now and go oh, that really wasn't good well let's try and keep the uh, ball moving here because there's a lot more invasion stuff to discuss right now uh talk about a lot of people forget about the episode of smackdown that follows this infamous episode of raw because they did another smackdown becomes wcw event in the main event which was booker t against ddp for the world heavyweight championship Again, Anderson and Scott Hudson are on commentary. Again, they changed the arena effects to make it WCW. Only this time we actually see Booker T win the match. Probably because at the time Booker was aiming to be a definitive face and DDP was a definitive heel. Yeah. Uh, Obviously, Booker T can only win because the Undertaker interferes. Right. How could a WCW superstar win a match? And then they do a, a, an angle where The Undertaker chases DDP behind the scenes and he gets attacked by a group of WCW stars, uh, DDP, Buff Bagwells, this is his final WWF appearance, uh, Chavo Guerrero, Lance Storm, Mike Awesome, Chris Canyon and Sean Stasiak all beat him up. And then Shane tells him to stop beating up The Undertaker and then they beat up Shane McMahon. D- wow. I know. Uh, um, this, is, this is really forgotten about, huh? Yeah, well, and then you move on to the next episode of Raw, which is arguably, in, in Raw has a very long storied history, but there are a few episodes of Raw that are more, where more happens than the July the 9th one. So it starts off, there's a match between uh, Shane and DDP are meant to have a street fight. And instead of that happening, because The Undertaker decides to come out and try to beat up DDP, what happens is, Swerve of all swerves, Shane McMahon and DDP are actually working together, and Shane and DDP take out The Undertaker. Wow. As, as heels. And they, then, they were all over the place. Yeah. And then later on in the night, uh, Shane helped Booker T cheat to defeat Kurt Angle in a match. So, okay. Booker T turns, so Booker T turns heel. And then, then, going on from that point, you have a tag team match between Chris Jericho and Kane against Lance Storm and Mike Awesome. And during this match, uh, is this, where RVD, kind of... and Dr- is this yeah. where RVD and Dreamer show up? Yeah, it all breaks down, and RVD and Tommy Dreamer invade from the crowd to like attack Jericho and Kane, and then they are char- they are well supposedly supported by 
WWF talent, uh, just incredible. Rhino, Raven, Taz, the Dudley boys all come out to try and defend WWF. But I guess you could probably tell by the names that I listed that these are all former ECW guys. And so they all turn on Kane and Jericho. They beat them up. And Paul Heyman comes out and says that this invasion has just become much more extreme. Um, He took a liking for a little while to calling the ECW guys the tribe of extreme, Mm. which I, I don't know. Tribe seems like such a small group that, you know, it seemed like they never had much of a chance. I'll say this. There are very few memories that stick out as well as RVD showing up on Raw for the first time. I always was captivated by RVD, especially at this time in this era. So cool moment. It leads to a very bad moment. Yeah, well, the the reaction to this ECW invasion is pretty much the polar opposite of the WCW side of things. These guys were the alternative. These guys were the cool, independent guys that never got super big, but had this hardcore, devoted fan base. And there were plenty of those fans in the crowd because they got super excited for this. And then the plan was, well, what happened later on is that Shane and Vince decided to make a a short alliance, funnily enough, where a team of w, a combined WWF and WCW team would take on all of the ECW guys in a 10-on-10 tag team match in the main event. So WWF was the APA, the Big Show, Billy Cunt and Harker Holly, and WCW were represented by Chuck Palumbo, Sean O'Hare, Sean Stasiak, Canyon, and Mark Jindrak. Uh, well, let me tell you, when, uh, when Billy and Chuck's eyes locked that night, magic happened. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I, I like the fact we're gonna have to, we're gonna get to talk about that later on because they they will be later in two thousand one. So stay tuned for the uh, November and December editions when they happen. But um, so but what happens is another swerve, ECW and WCW hug. They team up. They take out all the WWF guys. Then Heyman and Shane hug. Vincent Mann's on stage going crazy about it. And then they announce the new owner of ECW, Stephanie McMahon Helmsley. This is the part where I always wonder, how much does this change if Triple H is not on the shelf? Exactly. That's probably the big deal. Um, but the bigger issue I have for it me is, okay, maybe, obviously, I would have timed, like, the WCW thing differently. Like, think about, like, by WrestleMania 18, you have Hogan under contract, you have Nash under contract, you have Hall under contract, Flair's working for the company. You have You have people to make a solid invasion for ECW now well, for WCW now with the Stephanie McMahon thing it just things that the invasion is no longer about WCW and ECW against WWF it's now it's about bit, McMahon it's... family drama it's, yeah. it's, it's the same as everything that we've seen since the Attitude Era started it's all about the McMahon family and what they're doing and I think to an extent people think that's what they're tuning in for like this dynasty kind of soap opera where it's like oh well, it's really all about the mcmahon and their drama and this is such a simple story that you ruined with this idea that you know haha vince's kids actually hate him because he's a prick yeah i don't know it's 
it was just too it's it was so overkill it was overkill it was, it was overcomplicating something that should have been like you say completely simple just two companies that were once at loggerheads as the biggest companies in north america just like going at it the best against the best i would argue that you almost don't need a story here you could throw a dream card on a piece of paper and that is your story they overcomplicated it yeah well, yeah, we just talk about, we we're going to talk about Invasion later. That was one of the biggest buy rates in, like, WWF history. And that card was terrible compared to what it could have been a couple of years later. Like, just, yep. yeah, you looked at, oh, uh, Billy Kidman against X-Park is really going to put butts in the seats when we could have had, I don't know, Goldberg against Austin in 2002 or whatever. Well, well let's talk about what we did get in 2002. As you said, just... About six to eight months later, we had Undertaker versus Ric Flair and The Rock versus Hulk Hogan. Mm. And they were doing the NWO gimmick. Like, there's no way that this couldn't have happened. Yeah. Um, it's quite interesting about the uh, naming scheme, because originally they were, they were referred to as WECW. That was the name they gave it on uh, WWF.com. And then they changed World it Extreme to... World Extreme Championship Wrestling? I I don't know what they decided to do like that, but then they changed it to WCW slash ECW because they're very creative like that. Yeah, I, uh, you know, worked they cha- for WCW for a long yeah. time. And then they changed it to the Coalition and then later the Alliance. I would have, honestly, I would have preferred WECW because at least that sounds like you're trying to make some sort of company. Mm. The Alliance always sounded dumb to me. Um, it's quite an interesting situation with the ECW because the weird thing is that Heyman didn't own the rights to ECW. He'd given them up in the fact that he'd declared bankruptcy. So and, that's and, right. They didn't own the rights until what? Oh four. Yeah, exactly. Well, they they kind of got it. I think it was slightly close to the time, but essentially when they decided to launch this alliance, they did not own the rights. The ECW was it was owned by the bankruptcy court in White in White Plains, New York. So all the name, all the trademarks, all the logos, all the things like that that were constituted ECW were owned by that court. And so they could have easily decided if they wanted to, to sue WWF for this under the same sort of um, gimmick infringement clause that WWF once used to try and stop Scott Hall and Kevin Nash from getting on TV. With the idea that they were just uh, taking the characters from Diesel and Razor Ramon that were WWF products. That's uh, so, it's it seems like they went through too much when they could have had a very easy summer. Yeah, but there was it was very much like a belief behind the scenes that Heyman had been working for several months to try and get ECW to be reborn in WWF. Like he would constantly bring up ECW on commentary. He would talk about how these guys are extreme hardcore. I know a thing or two about extreme. He would talk about how Lawler was a terrible commentator when he replaced him. He talked about. WCW was an uncalled dead company. Like he really wanted to be like if anyone was going to do an invasion, he wanted it to be W. Wanted it to be ECW doing it, not WCW. I think it's during uh, Rikishi and Haku against Undertaker and Kane, where uh, Heyman's like, "Well, this certainly is raw. It's extreme," and Jr. just snaps like. It's not extreme, Paul. This is not extreme. Quit beating a dead horse and let it go. 
yeah, so essentially, as time would wear on, they would eventually be able to purchase all the ECW rights, trademarks, video library, all that other stuff. Um, this is pretty much the idea that WWF was the only real bidder for that for that stuff. I think Acclaim wanted to purchase most of it for a while. They had owned some of it, didn't they? Yeah, they, they'd worked part of the side of things, but that would have eventually dealt with and eventually WWF for the only real bidder, and they bought it for a few million, similar to what they did for WCW. But, yeah, so now we have the battle lines drawn. Now it is WWF on one side, ECW and WCW as a combination on the other. And so now that was essentially the storyline we'll, we'll be talking about now between July now all the way through to November. That's, first of all, that's too long. And I lived through it and just having to relive it again, it seems so long. And I don't know if I've ever seen a main event storyline. Maybe the Nexus is the only comparable thing that was so inconsequential by the next year's WrestleMania. That that's probably a fair a fair argument to make. Uh, we saw plenty of title changes between uh, the sides now. So uh, Jeff Hardy from WWF defeats Mike Awesome for the Hardcore title before RVD then beats Jeff Hardy, which we'll talk about on the Invasion review. Stone Cold takes the title over to the Alliance. You have Lance Storm wins the Intercontinental title. Kurt Angle Booker T trade the WCW Championship during in the end of July. X-Pac unifies the WCW and WWF uh, light heavyweight and cruiserweight titles to just be now it's just the WWF cruiserweight title. That's interesting to me because that is almost like them admitting that that was the one thing they did right. WCW? Because yeah. they didn't keep the light heavyweight title. No, they decided to go with Cruiserweight instead. I mean, it's, it is quite an interesting... I don't know if that's an admission or they just like the name better. But to be fair, the only reason they ever had the light heavyweight division is because they were trying to ape on what WCW were doing with Cruiserweight. And also, you mentioned Booker T and the Kurt Angle trading. People forget, I think, because they do the whole five-time, five-time, five-time. The fifth time was a WWF win. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so yeah, his fifth reign as the WCW World Heavyweight Champion happened on an episode of Raw. Yep. After losing it on the previous episode of SmackDown. So he's also, only a four-time uh, champion, really. He's only a four-time champion under the actual guise of WCW, but because the title was still referred to as the WCW Heavyweight Championship at that point, it still, it still technically counts. And they did own WCW, so I guess you can kind of justify it. Yeah. But there was also, during that episode of SmackDown where he loses the WCW title, by the way, he also just hands the United States title over to Canyon. Well, so he Can- didn't even, in that Buff Bagwell match, he didn't even come out with it. No. I think he does come out with it. He, do, he comes out with it for the um, Invasion match. So uh, A that, Canyon, that's an interesting choice. Yeah, I think they saw a lot of potential in him as a young guy that was coming through, but... There were probably better options. But then again, like Lance Storm was already a Cornell title holder at that point. They didn't really see a huge amount of upside in Mike Awesome. You're not exactly going to give that title to um, like Plumbo or O'Hare or Stasiak, probably. I think the mistake was not running a little bit more with Awesome. Probably not. Yeah, Awesome was somebody who had a lot more potential than was shown at that point in time. Considering I mean, he's one of the only guys within the Alliance that was actually a big deal in both WCW and ECW. Yeah. 
I mean, realistically, they should have given DDP the United States Championship. They should have given him something that I... Because that's something that him and Undertaker could feud over. Yeah, and the Undertaker being the American badass, you'd think he'd kind of be into that. Yeah. Uh, the final really big thing that happened on TV on the um for July is the return of The Rock from filming uh just his uh, the Scorpion King, yeah, and all that other stuff. He returns on the July thirtieth edition of Raw, and the whole the whole show is kind of built around the idea of who is The Rock going to side with. Does he come back to the WWF or are WWE able to lure him over to their side? And so, uh, WCW, I think uh, like Stephanie and Shane and Heyman create this these welcome banners and stuff like that to try and get The Rock to join on their side. And The Rock comes out for the what proves to be the highest rated segment in 11 months for WWF. So it gets the overall show gets 5.68 rating. The Rock segment drew a 7.2 rating. Well, what does that say about The Rock? Is he a bigger drawer than Stone Cold? A, a babyface Rock is a bigger drawer than a heel Steve Austin. And a heel Steve Austin that had been on the show for multiple months at this point in time. And they were probably so sick of it. Yeah, it's always it's always absent makes the heart grow fonder, as we like to say. I mean, we look at the latest episode of Raw. Steve Austin oh, was yeah. drawn enough of a draw to get them over three million. Yeah, that's so wild. It's amazing what name value and a little bit of proper booking at any point in your career can do for you throughout the rest of your career so the rock uh in the segment until close the show the rock immediately uh rock bottoms vincent man and so they there's the assumption that always oh, joined wsw so he shakes shane mcmahon's hand but then pulls shane in for a rock bottom as well gives him the people's elbow and says uh, the catchphrase, finally, The Rock has come back to the WWF. And then that yeah. launches him on that launches him onto a feud with Booker T at SummerSlam for the WCW Heavyweight Championship. So let's talk about the, the Sting thing. Because this <laughs> always stands out to me. Where, you know, Rock is being The Rock. And I think Booker T's clearing out WF guys. Rock's clearing out WCW guys. And they look at each other, and Rock just goes, who in the blue hell are you? And <laughs> for Sting, that's enough for Sting to go, well, if you're going to be that shitty towards guys that have been on TV forever, then I don't want to go over there. Do you think he's right? I think the last thing you want to do if you've got, especially a weak side of WCW, like you don't have the big names, the last thing you want to do is make it seem like all the WCW guys are worthless. In this particular, they're world champion. Do you think they tried to just gloss over it because it's The Rock? He would have done it to Triple H, you know? Yeah, potentially. But I think they could have, they should have worked around it a little bit better. I mean, it's just the idea of like just saying, who in the blue hell are you? Like, he... He wouldn't. I know there's the argument that he could have said that stuff to Triple H, but he rarely said that sort of stuff to Triple H. He was very much like, if there's a big deal I'm facing, then I'm going to treat them with a certain modicum of respect. I'm still going to like talk all over them and lay them into the ground and all their stuff. I'm going to kick their candy ass and what have you. But you can say all that stuff without saying, "Oh, you're just a guy in front of me." Like, what's so special about you? Yeah, I think, I think it's just a case like it's it should be. This is 
like 101 wrestling booking you should never ever in a feud say that the guy you're facing is worthless because then if he beats you what what are you yeah if he beats you then you just got beaten by someone worthless and if you beat them well who cares you just beat someone worthless you always build up your opponent it's something that too many wrestlers in their feuds have always built with the idea of burying the person they're facing. You should always try and make the person you're facing as big a deal as possible because then when you beat them, you got you like you beat someone who's a huge deal. It makes it much more meaningful. And if you lose them, well, you lost to someone who's a huge deal, so it doesn't hurt you as much. But there's yeah. so many people in the past that just don't get this simple logic. Honestly, The Rock recently said that he loved his time with Booker T. Booker T was actually one of his favorite programs. And I'm like, well, then shit, you shouldn't have uh, brushed over it because I always felt like this is one of the worst rock feuds because it never felt like the rock was in jeopardy. No. Let's move on to a few other bits and pieces now to talk just a bit bit more about the overall new situation now we've moved on from talking about invasion the like the whole invasion angle the alliance program that's just kicked off we'll definitely be talking about it more in the upcoming edition so make sure you like subscribe hit the little notification bell make sure you're following the channel following us on any of your platforms on your on our facebook twitter everywhere else find small count moment just so you can make sure that you're always here when we put our next editions up and every other show that we do, because there's more and more to do, because there's more and more wrestling happening <laughs> oh, yeah. over and over again. Uh, so let's talk about uh, the idea that there was kind of like fractions between the locker rooms. There was a lot of tension between the WWF and WCW guys. The idea that WWF guys believed that the WCW guys lacked a lot of respect, uh, lacked a lot of like just real integrity, thought they were all kind of like full of themselves. Uh, in particular, the ones that were viewed as kind of cocky and arrogant were the likes of Booker T, Buff Bagwell, Stacey Keebler, Chuck Palumbo, and Sean O'Hare. You know, I often hear about this sort of thing, how there's tension on both sides, because the WWF was like, wait a minute, you know, we're all young guys here, and we thought our spots were safe. And I never saw that as a bad thing. I think that's actually something that's missing today. Yeah. There is an idea that they might feel a little bit too safe. And there's also the idea of, especially with like AEW coming around and other competition from elsewhere, that it's almost like people can just stay in WWF because they don't want to lose anyone to the competition. But that makes you... It, it's it's interesting because it's like it gives you that security that you're after, but it also can make you complacent. I mean, if, I if agree. The talk, if the rumours are true about how much the like Gallows and Anderson are now making, it's like... That set that set a new standard for like this these two who are obviously like decent deals like especially now as part of the original club again, but are just a pretty mid card tag team act, and they're making I don't know like I, I mean I've seen stuff like a million around about that rate each. I believe the revival who are signed on for five years, each guy is going to walk away with like at least 2.5 million by the end of it which is crazy when you think about their position on the card yeah it's just it's just what the even the auspices of what competition will do to a company yeah uh, uh there was also a lot of heat on book t after the uh, king of the ring spot with steve austin because there's the idea that 
uh, they didn't he didn't protect Austin by going through the table because essentially, if I remember correctly, he just dropped him. Yeah, he through the announce table. Thrown. And considering the fact that Austin was already banged up going into that match, they thought that was like very unsafe of him. And then also the fact that he didn't wait at Gorilla to check on Austin when he came back from the match was also seen as a mock disrespect. But, and we can't comment on this too much, obviously, but wrestling has so many weird, like, traditions and yeah. customs. Uh, so it's hard it, to it, say. Yeah. It must have been hard for Booker T. Maybe WCW customs were different than WF customs. Yeah. I mean, especially, like, you took someone like Booker T. I mean, I could probably say that you probably, after dropping that guy, you probably should go check on him pretty soon afterwards. Because it's, I think it's only fair, and that seems like just common courtesy in my mind. Obviously, I'm not part of the locker room, and they've been part of any of these sort of things, so I can't say for certain, but that would just seem like a common courtesy thing for me. Maybe he thought he was okay. Like, you know what I mean? Maybe he yeah. thought, okay, well, he got up, he finished the match, he's probably been dropped through tables before. Yeah. Maybe but, he but, didn't know. But it's the idea of, like, Booker T, you've, you've essentially waived a decent amount of money to come to WWF earlier than others would to try and stamp your authority and fight for your place and then you're immediately one of the pe- people that is considered to be a, a toxic influence on the locker room that must be pretty hard to deal with but you have to know again given the weird things of wrestling that they were going to look at him they were going to find something to make him a toxic member of the locker room just because he's new blood you know mm. yeah exactly and it wasn't only just the new members in the roster that were getting abuse as well. It's also some of the WCW agents that were brought in as a like essentially people putting the matches together. So Ricky Santana, Dave Finley, and Arn Anderson were all given pretty rough treatment to start with. How stupid and shitty is that? I know, especially considering how big a deal Finley would prove to be going forward, and Arn Anderson for many years as well. It's just. The only one that really got away with it was John Laurinaitis. And John Laurinaitis has always had this ability to push himself up the ladder, like talk to the right people, shake the right hands, that sort of attitude. Yeah. He's he's I, pretty much like a master politician. It's Wrestling is such a weird animal to me. And when you hear that, like here's Booker T who understood the job promotion he was getting, probably as much as the Laurinaitis did, to treat that guy like shit just because he didn't know how to toe the line in the WWF way is so just odd yeah. to me. Like I think it was just an idea that WWF was, as a structure was so much more organized than WCW was in its final years, which I think, considering what the product WCW was putting out, is not very hard to like to equate that. Right. And and so coming into a new environment was probably pretty jarring. I'm not saying that I think it was just very much a miscommunication between both sides. There's nobody there's no one side that's to blame for all of that stuff. But but I guess you could have said the WWF guys could be, could have been more accommodating and seen it as an opportunity to maybe make some money. I I just think that it's it's really dumb because they cost a lot of people I think some spots along the way. And yeah, it's cutthroat, but some people never even got a chance. Well, speaking of people that didn't get a chance, Buff Bagwell was back again. Oh, fuck. Um, 
So he immediately made enemies of management, immediately made enemies of the leaders in the locker room, uh, seen as a whiner, a complainer, uh, wanting to get his own way, got into the altercation with Shane Helms fairly early on. And then there's the infamous story that JR tells about Judy Bagwell calling him up, uh, telling him that Buff Bagwell couldn't turn up for a meeting or a training session or a show because he had suffered a head injury in the... um, that altercation with uh, Shane Helms, and also during a powerbomb that he took on that episode of SmackDown, and then also to complain about his travel arrangements, saying that he wasn't being treated fairly enough. Callum, how old are you? How old am I? Yeah, how old are you? Uh, going on 27 now. You're going on 27. How long have you been at your job? Uh, Nearly four years at this point. <laughs> okay. Let's say you just... You start a new job, you get a promotion, and you're a little under the weather. So you go, Mom, please call my job and tell them I'm not coming to work today. Well, yeah, it's, it's strange enough that I'm also not a 31-year-old multi-millionaire. <laughs> <laughs> that seemingly, that is, I mean, oh, there's the obviously, Ju- Judy Bagwell has been an albatross over Buff Bagwell's entire career. Like the fact that he had to involve his mom in all of this stuff from being on the show where she totally outshadowed him in terms of charisma and ability, <laughs> considering the fact that she'd never wrestled before. Wasn't she a former WCW tag team champion with uh, Rick yeah. Steiner? Yeah, with Rick Steiner, yeah. Woo! I know. She, she once appeared on a forklift. That happened. Oh, yeah, the Judy Bagwell on a pole match. Woo! Um... She was, uh, well, essentially Buff was pretty soon after that released by JR before the, uh, the ninth episode, the ninth of July episode of Raw. Just let go. And he goes into the independent circuit again. I think we'll see him pop up a little bit more in some of the Australian shows that we might review later oh, on. Man. Those shows are a trip. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure we'll have plenty of fun reviewing those ones. Uh, but let's talk a little bit more about uh, another show that was going on under the WF banner, which was Tough Enough. So we've spoke about, we kind of gave a bit of an overview, so I'm not going to go like too in-depth with Tough Enough because we've already spoken quite a bit so far. We've got still got plenty of stuff to cover. But during July, there's the uh, pretty famous episode of uh, Triple H, like chewing out all of the recruits. Just basically talking about how hard life would be on the road and how much passion you need to have for this business do, do you recall that scene at all yeah he he basically tells them you know you're not just getting in this to be a rock star and get laid it's it's a tough life on the road you never see your families he points out that one guy's got his balls hanging out of his shorts um <laughs> then in the ring he says to one guy that he was selling so shitty that if he sold like that in the ring, he'd punch him for real. Like, he basically runs down these guys. And pretty much by the end of that episode, Jason decided to leave because he decided that the burden of being on the road all the time was not for him. And so he essentially just walked out the show. That's a shame. I bet you he would have been a five-time world champion. Five-time WCW champion, yeah. Jason, whatever your name is. I don't even have the names in front of him. I have certain names in front of me. I only have their first names because, quite frankly, they didn't amount to anything. So, not worthy of a second name in my book. What uh, was Maven's last name? I was Huffman. thinking about that the other day. 
Maven Huffman. Uh, yeah, which is funny enough because Booker's Cause real Booker's name is Booker Huffman. Name, yeah, yeah, no. Ah, interesting. I I'm pretty sure they weren't related, but it's a nice little coincidence. Uh, so they have um the tough enough ratings have actually stayed pretty stable and pretty good around about like the twos to two point five range. But that was okay. until uh, that was until Daryl got eliminated. Daryl was you know how most reality TV shows has that asshole character that everyone yep. hates but likes to see but it keeps around because they're entertaining because they're so they end up becoming the show because they're so entertaining. Yeah. yeah, so he was eliminated after week four. And then and then pretty soon after the ratings start to dip not significantly, but they dip slightly. I remember being a fan of Nowinski. Christopher Nowinski was well. one he was one of the ones with like actual real training and had a lot of size about him, so they did like him. And but, like actually liked wrestling. Mm, like previously trained by Klikowski and stuff like that, so he had the pedigree behind him. Ah. Suit you there. Sweet yeah. To, to be fair, that um, I think the episode where Daryl got eliminated, it was actually between him and Nowinski who was going to get eliminated. Well, but, then I'm glad Daryl got eliminated. Yeah, because Nowinski's done a lot of great stuff, especially since leaving WWE. So we might have missed out on all that stuff. Um, I think one of the most infamous moments of it was also there was an episode where they went to Pat Patterson's house for dinner. Just to okay. like, talk about some stuff. And then it was very clear throughout the entire thing, that none of them knew who Pat Patterson was. Which at I least... think is fair. Well, which not... not. You, should, you shouldn't at you this should point You should at least time... know the Stooge. Yeah, well, no, there's the thing. They, they knew him as the Stooge on TV. But I think, realistically, if you want to be that big of a deal in fresh wrestling, you have to have at least some background in who Pat Patterson is. I would have thought at least one of them would have known. But all of them just know, oh, yeah, you're the guy who clowned around with Vincent Mann backstage. It's like, didn't, like, it just leads me to think, like, do none of these guys actually know anything about wrestling history, or do they all just get in because they thought it was cool? Which I guess is, like, what certain people do, but I've always gravitated towards people that have a, at least a, a passing interest in the history of the company. Well, I think you could get away with getting into it because it was cool back in 2001. Like, nobody today is going to join tough enough because wrestling is cool. They're going to join because they're into the business. Whereas in 2001, it was like, fuck yeah, man, I want to be so cold. What do you mean? I want to kick ass and drink beer on TV. Like, I think that's acceptable. I guess so. Um, Let's talk about some things that were less good for WWF. So they posted a... um... A $20 million loss in their fourth quarter. Uh, all due pretty much entirely to the XFL. Still rearing its ugly head. Um, so the league finished its only season posting a total 93.8 million loss. I cannot wait to talk more about the XFL. And So what is the time to beat so I can keep in mind for this upcoming XFL? How many months? Two. Two. Right. So if XFL 2020 can last two months, they have succeeded. Well, they're gonna, the, the thing is, uh, Vince McMahon's already like, seen the forecast of how much he's willing to lose on this thing. It is going to last three years. I'm it's, pretty certain. On one platform or another, it will last three years. Beyond that, I have no idea. It's definitely lasting three years? I would, 
Okay, I, I maybe wouldn't go that far as certainty. If you're going to ask me to guarantee it, I think it's guaranteed to last two two seasons. Okay. You can hold me to that. That's fair. And I think, you know what? Good for them. If they can come out on top, then they won in some way, shape, or form. Yeah. And there's also the um, idea that uh, Channel 4 in the UK, which is one of our main terrestrial programs, so it's it's like, uh, I guess, similar to Fox, in the idea that it's, it's open to everybody. That's uh, ITV4? No, Channel 4. Uh, so okay. we we have um it's not ITV4 like the one that uh, AEW is going to be ITV4 is a subsidiary of ITV, which is okay. like the f- which is the second big channel in WWE in uh, the UK should I say so you got um you have the BBC, which I um, think you must be familiar with BBC right yes we're all yeah. familiar with BBC yeah so we have BBC ITV and then there's Channel Four and Channel Five. and there are there are similar ones as well you have BBC One you have BBC Two you have certain Another BBC channel, which you have ITV one through four, four, and you have Channel Four. You have yeah, there's a lot of like subsidiary stuff that you can get on free TV. So this was at this point in time, this was WWF's way of accessing people that didn't have Sky, which is a paid for subscription model. Uh, so it's essentially like cable. Um, so Channel Four is a great channel to be on because everybody gets it. Sort of like how. Like like you said, Fox, everybody gets Fox, everybody gets CBS, NBC, that yeah. sort of thing. Yeah, and so this was, it announced that it was cancelling all WWF program when its contract expired. So the station itself, it didn't carry like the main shows, it carried Heat, and it showed, broadcast several of the pay-per-views as well. But it said that the ratings were not the factor in it, the reason was due to increasingly violent scenes and the portrayal of women on their shows was the reason why they went to cut ties with WWE. I think that's fair. I think um, Vince McMahon just yesterday said he would never go back to the gory crap, as he quoted it, of the Attitude Era. Although a lot of people, considering what Channel 4 was broadcasting at the time, considered that to be a bullshit excuse. I can't remember certain things in particular, but I know that Channel 4 was known to be very uh, edgy in their programming at that point in time uh i'm pretty sure they did a a series at one point where it was a naked tv show (laughs) like a naked game show hosted by a guy who yeah like naked and afraid or no it was just like a game show where just people just did a load of silly games naked i see okay (laughs) it was hosted by it was hosted by keith chegwin who was like a big television presenter at the time or he had been a big television presenter but had like been dropped down the ranks recently and uh he presented it completely naked as well it's like i don't know why they ever thought that was a good idea because naked yeah exactly uh but that's kind of it for news based around wwf at this point in time but we there's a few other bits and pieces we don't just try and focus on wwf there's other promotions existing in 2001 uh, let's talk about the G1 Climax. Oh, okay. Uh, how great was that uh, Ishii against Moxley match? <laughs> oh, it was fantastic. Like, wow. No, we got to talk about G1 Climax 2001, which was oh. a significantly worse. Uh, <laughs> okay. But um, here, here are the names that were in Block A and Block B. So Block A, you might recognise a few of these names. They, they were still competing. Some of them are still competing to this day. So we have Tatsumi Fujinami. Okay, I know who that is. Yuji Nagata. 
know who that is. Manabu, uh, Manabu Nakanishi. Don't know who that is. You don't know who Nakanishi is? He still wrestles for New Japan. Not off the top of my head. Yeah, he still wrestles for New Japan. He's one of the... He, you know the um how they have like these legend teams? Like, like you have like the, the New Japan. Yeah, it's one of those ones we have like okay, Nagata, yeah. Tenzan, Kojima. He's like one of those guys. He's um, um he's pretty chubby. He's bald. Okay, yeah, I'm looking at a picture of him. I absolutely yeah. know who that is. So they have a uh, Minoru Tanaka. I who know is, who that is. Yeah, who was one of their big uh, junior heavyweights at the time. Uh, Tadao Yasuda and uh, Kazunari uh, Marukami. Minoru Tanaka is still working. Yes. He's working for Noah and he's working with MLW now. That much I know. Uh, on the block B side, we had Keiji Muto. Love him. Uh, Masahiro Chono. Love him. Hiroshi Tenzan. Please, okay. Satoshi Kojima. Very good. Uh, Osama Nishimura. Okay. And Jushin Thunder Liger. I think Jushin Thunder Liger should have been this year's tournament, but yeah, whatever. He should have been the Super Juniors, at the very least, if he still qualifies. <laughs> uh, so this was this is different than the uh, uh, G1 that we know nowadays in the fact that this was the this was the year they decided to do semi-finals before a final. So it was the idea that the top two finishers from each block would face each other in the semi-finals before the final would take place between the wi- the winner of that semi-final of Block A and the semi-final of Block B. So in this instance, we might as well cover the rest of the G1 because we're not gonna we're not really gonna pay too much passing attention to it. But in this case, it was Yuji Nagata and Tadao Yasuda with fought in one semi-final, and Keiji Muto and Masahiro Chono fought in the other. And then Nagata won his one and only G1 climax in 2001. Poor Nagata never was able to win the title, but he should have. He did win the title. He he won the IWGP Heavyweight title. Yep. He's, a, he's, as far as I'm aware, a one-time IWGP heavyweight champion. When did he get it? I think it was far beyond this point. I can't say with any real certainty, but I know I, I know he's from that. He's on that like presentation of champions that they do before every uh, world title match nowadays. He wasn't the guy that beat Brock, was he? No, that was um that was Kurt Angle. That was Angle. But and I know he doesn't beat Angle. Uh, no, he doesn't beat Angle. He actually f- loses to Angle for the title. Uh, it, it was uh, Nakamura that beat Angle for the title. And Nakamura okay. had already been... It w- I was watching a... Um, have you seen um, the... Uh, and yes, I highly recommend. Yeah, the Kim they're... Justice yes. uh, documentary on the Brock Lesnar situation, which I highly recommend anyone who hasn't seen it just to search out Kim Justice and watch this thing if you're in any way interested in New Japan Pro Wrestling. It's a phenomenal piece. Uh, they do fantastic work. So he beats uh, Tadao Yatsuda in 02, and then he actually beats Tanahashi in 07, and he loses it shortly after. He doesn't have very long reigns. So his first reign is only a month long before losing it to Takayama, and then he loses it about three months later or so to Tanahashi in 07. Okay, so a two-time champion, no real bad shakes for Nagata, who is one of the most, I don't want to say underrated, but he's somebody who was just so good that Underappreciated, I think. Yeah, yeah underappreciated. Tam. He was never an ace for the company. No, and he kind he of should have been. been. Yeah, he should have been. Um, 
alongside the G1 climbers, New Japan also held a G1 World Tournament, which was made exclusively for gaijins. So, which obviously, if you're familiar with the terminology, is for non-Japanese wrestlers. So, this tournament featured Don Fry, who was the eventual winner of the tournament, uh, Scott Hall, Scott Norton, Giant Silver, and Super J. Do you have any idea who Super J is? Um, Super J. No. He was NWO Sting. Wow, that's or, a Jeff Farmer? Yeah, Jumping Jeff Farmer. Oh my god. Uh, he was actually a really big deal in Japan. <laughs> so They liked NWO Sting in Japan, I, I do know that. Yeah. Uh, it was also meant to include uh, Bam Bam Bigelow, but he had he couldn't sort out issues with his uh, Time Warner contract that he had with WCW. That would have been good for his career. And also something that wasn't very significant at the time, but has become nowadays very significant, was uh, July also saw the debut in New Japan of uh, Gedo and Jado. Ah. As a uh, junior heavyweight tag team. That's important in today's world. Yeah, because Gedo is now the head booker of New Japan. Uh, Jado is also one of his, Jado is one of his close confidants as well. Also has a big part of playing the booking committee. And uh, they're both on-screen members of Bullet Club. Exactly. And Ghetto has a cl- at least some sort of claim to be one of the greatest bookers in wrestling history. Yeah, I think that's fair. Uh, especially for New Japan. New Japan has had some... I mean, Ricky Choshu is considered one of the greatest ones as well. You could argue that at least to a certain degree... I mean, you have to say that Vincent Mann would be up there, regardless of what's going on nowadays. Uh, Triple H has the potential to be it with what he's done with NXT and then but it will kind of have to the proof is still being developed for him we'll do a a Mount Rushmore bookers at some point even if it's just being counted yeah look at people like Bill Watts all people like that there's there's a lot of names that could be contention for but Ghetto is a huge deal Uh, now let's go into you know we like to talk a few sad things Uh, death and professional wrestling go hand in hand wouldn't be be 2001 it seems without sad things so 2001 saw two fairly significant deaths. I think one bigger than the other, but the big one was the death of Terry Gordy. Yeah, uh, it sucks. Terry Gordy was only 40 years old at the time of his death uh, from a heart attack. Uh, he's considered one of the big stars of Texas wrestling, uh, one of the founding members of the Fabulous Freebirds. He was also considered like... Him and there's few people that are considered like wrestling savants, essentially. People that just picked up wrestling instantaneously. Like people talk about how Kurt Angle picked it up faster than anyone's done. People talk about Ronda Rousey and that sort of bracket as well. Terry Gordy was one of those people. Yeah, didn't he start? Wasn't he like already main eventing by 18, 19? Yeah, he started wrestling in his like early teens. Uh, lied so about his wild. age, competed like that. Uh, competing like through a lot of the seventies and eighties. Uh, yeah, it was just he was a huge, just a huge deal, just a, a great big man wrestler, very technically astute, knew what he was doing. Never re- had great conditioning in the ring as well, which was something that not a lot of people like had, especially at that point in time. And for a guy his size to have that conditioning. Oh yeah, he was a um like the Freebirds versus the Von Erichs is. Definitely in contention as one of the greatest wrestling feuds of all time. It completely turned around a promotion. Yep. Uh, so 
But one thing that is also, as, as much as Terry Gotti was a great wrestler, the thing that is also most remembered for was drug addiction. Uh, yeah. Which was sadly a thing that affected most wrestlers, well, not most wrestlers, but a lot of wrestlers in the 80s and 90s. So Terry Gotti suffered a... People, like drugs. It's so weird because we live in a time where, I don't know if you would agree with this, drug culture is almost widely accepted and almost endorsed mm-hmm. and drug culture in the 80s was out there and it was bad for everybody yeah well especially with the the more harder drugs that were available at that point in time i think that was probably more the bigger deal because nowadays there's, it's still like there's a drug culture but it's not really the hard drugs it's more like oh let's legalize marijuana and all that other stuff which depending on what your perspective on that sort of stuff it's not it, there's a lot worse things out there, whereas this time it was like everyone was doing cocaine, everyone was doing acid and MDMA, any of those sort of things. And Gordy was definitely not being left behind in that trail. Uh, so he had a, a major overdose in 1990 while he was holding the uh, Triple Crown Championship from All Japan Pro Wrestling. At the time, he was coming close to becoming the biggest, one of the biggest foreign stars in Japan. He was about to like surpass Stan Hansen in that role. He was actually offered an opportunity to fight Hulk Hogan at the um, Wrestling Summit of 1990, which was the only time where you saw a crossover between All Japan Pro Wrestling, New Japan, and WWF. Was that that like the SWS stuff? I'm not entirely certain. I'm not entirely sure. Is that where that was... Earthquake gets into that shoot fight with that dude? Uh, I think it would probably be that sort of situation, that sort of like crossover between those ones. I don't think it was that. I don't know if it was that event specifically, but it's kind of that sort of crossover that was happening. But this would be like he was meant to main event against Hulk Hogan, but he refused to do the job to Hulk Hogan because uh, I guess he didn't realize that Hogan was going to just win straight out. So Stan Hansen decided to take the place instead and did the job clean to Hogan. Yeah. I can understand Gordy not wanting to do the job. It was such a different time, you know, like you actually protected. I can't just out and out lose to this cartoon. Yeah. So soon after that, um, well, soon after in 93, uh, Gordy suffered another drug overdose on a flight going to Japan. And that left him in a coma for five days and clinically dead for a few seconds as well. Mm. Uh, this coma left him with pretty significant brain damage. Uh, he still continued to wrestle. Uh, he had a um, match with in ECW with Raven in 1996, which a lot of people considered like one of Raven's greatest achievements because he managed to carry Gordy to a great match. Uh, and that convinced WWF to bring Gordy back into their fold as the executioner. Right, which is interesting because that run was not so good. No, it was terrible. Uh, he was a lot slower. He still had like basic fundamentals down, but he just didn't have the conditioning or the ability to wrestle at that level anymore. And his just matches the execution. The idea was that he would eventually, well, he did a feud with The Undertaker, but it would have been a bigger deal. And then if he had gotten good, it was the idea he was brought in as the executioner under a mask because if he proved that he was still a top name, then they would have taken off the mask and he would just redebuted as Terry Gordy. You know, but, it sucks. Terry Gordy, as a healthy Terry Gordy, let's say a, a 1990 to 92 Terry Gordy against like a 97 Undertaker would have been a pretty good match. 
Yeah, absolutely. Obviously, Gordy passed away at the age of 40. Um, obviously, uh, his wrestling legacy continues with the fact that his son uh, was a wrestler of WWE, Jesse, from Jesse Investors. Sure, sure was. That was so shocking to me to learn that. Yeah, I know. So, yeah, I think he's... Um, I think he's Ray Gordy, I think his name is. Yeah. Uh I don't I don't know if he is still wrestling. I haven't heard anything for instance he was released from WWF. If he is wrestling, I believe I he's don't back. think he's still wrestling. I think if he is wrestling, I know he went back to Japan. I know he was wrestling in Japan for a while, so if he is still wrestling, he's probably there somewhere. Um he basically now there's nothing on his Wikipedia after two thousand ten. Uh, okay. He just, he He's a have... police officer now. Oh, that's cool. He's doing some sort of service. That's... It's a good profession, as long as he's not one of the corrupt ones, or the bad ones. Yes. But then, he, unfortunately, uh, Terry Gordy wasn't the only death from July. We have to talk about the death of Bertha Faye, or Rhonda Singh. I like Bertha Faye, man. Uh, you know, she... yeah. yeah, Bertha Faye, it's, it was a fun gimmick. She's a good worker for all accounts. Yeah. Uh, so she also passed away, unfortunately, at the age of 40 as well. The official cause of death was like it was a heart attack, although some argue that it was actually a suicide. Hmm. Didn't know that. Uh, so she made her legacy after being trained in uh, Japan. So she worked in a lot of Japanese promotions. She worked for Stampede Wrestling and then Puerto Rico for a while before uh, joining WWF. Uh, she has she had very little positive to say about her run in WWF. Uh, yeah, really? As Bertha, she hated being Bertha Faye. Uh, Why? The con- because of the connotation of being Bertha Yeah, it was the comedy wrestler side of things. She didn't get on with Harvey Whippleman behind the scenes. That, I know. They did not like each other. Yeah. Uh, so she won the Women's Championship at one point at SummerSlam from Melinda Blaze. Lost it back 57 days later on an episode of Raw. Uh, she asked for her own release from the company in 97. Uh, after, uh, I think it was 97. It might have been 96. 97? Yeah, yeah uh, it had to be 96. Yeah, 96 probably. Yeah, 96. Uh, after becoming uh, frustrated with the gimmick, is the idea that she wasn't allowed to wrestle her style of matches because they didn't want her doing the same power moves as the men do. So she wasn't allowed to do like power bombs or big suplexes or throws and stuff like that. She was just limited to the pretty basic big big person spots like splashes and oh, look, stuff I'm like that. Oh, I'm going to sit on you because I'm fat. Get it? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, so she really didn't like that. She also had a short stint in WCW when they were trying to launch their women's division with Medusa. That uh, sucks. I'm, I'm really sad that yeah, of course they'd be closed-minded. It was only 96. But that's so bad. Yeah, they I don't think they realize what they had with her but then again like it was only five years after that that she passed away so i, mean, I don't know i would what say the... maybe that would change but if you look at like yoko yeah. died i think even before 2001 didn't he uh yeah i believe so yeah so it's it's not like there's there's a lot of factors going into that side of things but it's obviously never good to lose anyone in the wrestling business especially someone at that age 40 years old that's that's no age to do it um yeah. Uh, and one, one final thing, just to try and lighten the mood a little bit after that one, just so we head into Invasion with a little bit more pep in our spirits. Um, there was a Turnbuckle uh, Wrestling Championship show, okay. uh, which was headlined by Dusty Rhodes and New Jack versus Larry Zabisco and Luther Biggs. Of course it was. <laughs> yeah. 
Why um, wouldn't Dusty Rhodes team with New Jack in 2001? Yeah. It's just like, it's just perfect. The idea, but the interesting thing about that was it featured the debut as a referee of one Cody, Cody Rhodes. Rhodes. Yep. Yeah. Uh, Cody actually touts the turnbuckle shows for making him fall in love with wrestling. I think that's like probably a fair assessment. I guess getting to see his dad work in the ring as well was probably a good way of doing it. I mean, this was this was Dusty's promotion. Of course, this would be an opportunity to get his son into the thing. I think probably at this time, Dusty was probably Dustin was probably working for um, this show as well because he hadn't been signed by WWF. Doesn't return as Gold Dust until 2002. So yeah. So, but yeah, that's uh, just a little just little nugget of information that we can end on before we move on now to talk about. One of the, I guess, like memorable shows in the history of WWF. It's uh, the one and only Invasion show. So admin out of the way. So Invasion 2001. Actually, admin out of the way. We're doing some admin. Let's do some plugs. Uh, we've always talked about like following us on all our social platforms and subscribing. Why don't while you're at it, hit up the Patreon. Give us a a few bucks, let us know we're doing a good job here with the 2001 and any other shows, because if you want to hear more podcasts, that's the way to do it, to give us the extra motivation to like dig in some time, put some podcasts together, have a little bit more fun with some interesting topics. Want to see another Mount Rushmore? Want to see another like Superstar Scores? Do we want to do Superstar Scores? Judy Bagwell, we'll do that if you give us some oh, money yeah. on there. Yeah, if you donate to the Patreon and leave a note specifically saying... Superstar scores Judy Bagwell. We will make it happen. Yeah. As we spoke about in the last one, I need money to buy a sense of humour. Uh, <laughs> Rob needs Rob needs some money to learn some new ways to concoct fr- phrases on the podcast. Yes. And Tony needs uh, uh, NyQuil. So... <laughs> no, Tony... I, I think NyQuil would go right through Tony. Tony needs money for the research for the sleep medicine that he would need. Yeah, exactly. So... Give us all that stuff. You can also, if you want to also support us monetarily, there's also the Red Bubble and Tea Public uh, t-shirts that you can purchase and all the other merchandise available on there. So check all that stuff out. Speaking of buys, let's go dive right back into Invasion 2001 with um, 770,000 pay-per-view buys. Uh, that makes it the most successful non-WrestleMania pay-per-view in WWE, WWF history. Terrible. Just because they did not, they just did not allow for any room for this to succeed. I know. Uh, so July twenty second, two thousand and one, from the Gundarina in Cleveland, Ohio. Uh, Seventeen thousand nine hundred sixty four announced in attendance. There's a heat match. Chavo Guerrero defeated Scotty Too Hotty on heat, which they refer to as like WCW going one up on the night, even though it wasn't on the actual show. Uh, I didn't actually watch that, so I don't know if it was good or bad. The, it, the guys in it makes it sound like it would have been okay, but... It probably would have been a good four-minute match. Yeah. Uh, so the opening pa- video package is essentially a mixture of showing a lot of WCW and ECW superstars and the owners in the middle of actual warfare. Yeah, just, um... like, just like army shots, bombs going off, Winston Churchill, Dwight Eisenhower, all that stuff. This show, I don't know if it's this show or if it's the show, if it's the raw leading up to it, features Freddie Blassie giving quite the fucking rally speech. Yeah, to the that, was a, 
Yeah, that was on the previous episode of Raw. Oh yeah, we didn't actually discuss that side of things because that was something that I didn't want to bring up in the previous one. So, foot. We'll bring up. So on the um the go home show or go home sort of Raw before this, it's the return of the quote unquote old Stone Cold, and, and that receives one of the loudest pops that I can ever recall hearing on a wrestling show. And you've probably seen this because if you follow any wrestling pages on social media, this clip is always being shared as like, boy, they don't make it like this anymore. Yeah, no, that is... But even for, like, Attitude Era standards, that was an explosion. And and it makes what happens at the end of the show so much more baffling. Because you could just tell with that moment how much they wanted to be behind Stone Cold again as the babyface. They wanted it so badly. And they took it away because they're a bunch of cunts. (laughs) That's the only description I can put for it at this point in time. Unless, like, Austin must have really had a bug up his ass. About being a heel. Like, no, I will be a heel. Fuck up. Yeah, I know. Fuck off. I will be a bad guy. I know. It's just... It's just it was an opportunity to rectify one of the biggest wrongs they'd ever done in terms of a booking strategy at that point in time, and they decided to double down on it essentially. Just uh, it's it's so 2019 for uh, in 2001. But uh, what do you think about the staging? It was alright. I've always liked this logo. I don't know for some reason that big V really stands out to me. Yeah, I liked the um. I like the idea of the um the two sides, so they were coming from like separate locker rings almost. I think TNA tried to do this because they used to have like heels and baby faces come from different sides of the Impact Zone. Uh, yeah, they did this for a very long time in two thousand. Yeah, which I, I don't think is I don't think it's a terrible way of doing it, especially when you're trying to get the idea of like dividing the t- the sides up. Aren't they uh, still? They're doing that in AEW now, aren't they? I've, they've done it occasionally. I think it depends on the like arena they can perform in. Hmm. Uh, but it'll be interesting to see if that, it does carry on. I don't think it's a terrible thing to do. I think it it could be very workable. Uh, have Jim Ross and Michael Cohen commentary for this show because Paul Heyman is odd pairing. I know it's it's two play by play guys. It's like there's no color. Like neither of these two have ever wrestled before. J, uh, JR would try to do color in 96, and Cole would do color later on, like, actually a decade after this, but... It's not the worst, it's not the worst pairing, I mean, I've always had a stick up about Michael Cole being terrible, but he's he's only terrible when he's being very overly produced, which is pretty agree. much all the time nowadays. I would agree. So... Um, so it, there's there's a really weird cutaway to where Lance Storm and Mike Awesome already just are in the ring. But they don't get an entrance or anything. And I tried That's... to like find old versions of it to see what actually happened, and I can't find any version where this doesn't just happen. That's so... very fitting for the WWF. Just... Yeah. Here's these two WCW guys that are in the ring. Yeah. Uh, so Lance Storm tries to cut his um, If I Can Be Serious for a Moment promo. And then he gets interrupted by um, Edge and Christian. So it's the first match of the, this show is Edge and Christian versus Lance Storm and Mike Orson. Overall thoughts of the match? Okay. You know, I... <laughs> it was a match, yeah. Yeah. That, I that's feel a, bad. That's the, Drew, that's the Drew-ism. It was a, a match. No? It, it was a match. I mean, these four guys should have killed it. 
you know, I imagine if they would have just let Justin Credible tag with Lance Storm. Why didn't they do that? I think they were trying to build up the idea of Awesome and Storm as a tag team for a while because they'd, they'd done quite a lot of work together in WSW, not as a tag team, but Is as opponents. Is he Canadian Awesome? I can't say with any real certainty here without like searching him out. I think he isn't. If I was just to guess that sort of thing, I think it's just no. He was that... born in Tampa, Florida. Yeah, so it's not it's not a Canadian thing. But then again, Justin Credible's not Canadian either. So yeah, okay. I know they obviously worked together a long According to his Wikipedia, his cousin is Horace Hogan. So at some somewhere down the line, Mike Awesome is related to Hulk Hogan. Oh yeah, I I, th- I think I vaguely remember hearing that fact. Yeah, so but, but I guess that's one claim to fame. Didn't really do too much for his um, career in WWF, unfortunately. Yeah, it really didn't. Um, so th- like you say, the match is just—it's okay. It's like it's a a average tag team match that you'd probably see on any episode of Raw or SmackDown Maybe at that time. At this point, main event. Yeah, so it's—I mean, it's—it's it's not really that significant. I mean, the crowd aren't very into it for most of it. I think there was still some real disconnect between Edge and Christian as baby faces at this point. They're still kind of developing. Yeah, uh, because they woke up one morning and decided Edge was gonna be you know, a young, scrappy baby face mm. when he had been a douchebag for the latter portion of his career. There was a spot early on where Christian tries to leap off Edge's back to jump over the ropes onto everyone and he catches his knee on the top rope and just flips straight over. I just thought, well, that was that was quite a big fuck up early on in the show. I but, guess uh, I like those though, because at least those, you know, sometimes wrestling can look too choreographed. Yes, very much so. Yeah. Uh, so you had a few just like near falls towards the end of it. You had a uh, Edge pushed uh, Christian out of the way and took a super kick from Lance Storm, and that gets a, a two count by Awesome. And then Awesome goes for the running power bomb on. Uh, Edge, Christian Spears, awesome. Edge drops down onto him and gets the pin. You know, a match, like we say. It was a match. <laughs> yeah, it's, re- there's very little else to say about it. Like, I think the closing sequence was okay. It was pretty good, but other than that, nothing special. This next match is the thing that dreams are written of. Oh, well, before that, we also talk about um, Vince Man is uh, behind the scenes with uh, William Regal where Vince tells Regal to do to Raven what George Washington did to the British during the American War of Independence. That's so... And it, to put it in context, this is actually pre-9-11. And that's such a Americana Vince McMahon thing to say. Uh, so we got got um, the match, to, as you alluded to earlier. Uh, Earl Hebner versus Nick Patrick. Referee versus referee. The thing that dreams are made of. I... I don't know what to say about this match other than <laughs> other than the fact is considering how bad you expect it to be, it's probably better than what you what you would have imagined going into it. Knowing well, the two Nick people involved, Patrick was an actual wrestler. Yeah, he That's... he could he did actually look like he could do a few bits and pieces, but Hebner wasn't at that level. <laughs> and by the way, who's the special guest referee here, but that three-time world champion, you know, guy who nearly gave his life for the company, Mick Foley. 
Yeah, Mick Foley comes down to be an impartial referee because all the referees are out there to support their guy. Kind of uh, the so, referee lumberjack match, yeah. basically. Yeah, there's also the idea that the um the WWF referees outnumber the WCW ones from two by two to one, pretty much. Also, it's like one... if two companies are going through a merger and they're not getting along, you wouldn't just say, "All right, gather all the janitors and have them fight in the parking lot." What? Wrestling is so weird, man. Yeah. <laughs> I think the funny thing was the idea they built up the idea that Nick Patrick was a crooked referee, so they wanted to he was the obvious heel. I think the funny thing was that um Brian Hebner, Earl Hebner's son, was a WCW referee in this angle. Oh well yeah, you had to fill out those WCW referee shirts. Yeah. Um so there was some it was just like really just unchoreographed brawling between the two of them. There was this fun spot where Hebner drags Patrick out to the alley oop spot. We just pull him out of the corner and just let him with a flat back bump. And that got a good reaction. I think the crowd were into this, which is a good thing. Yeah. They really hated Patrick. They really were behind Hebner. Hebner's punches were atrocious. Like, really Shane McMahon level punches. Uh, there's this thing where Patrick does a baseball slide to knock Hebner from the apron <laughs> to the floor. And I don't know how old Hebner was at this point in time. Like He was definitely in his 50s. He's just falling to the mat. And then he's get, he gets beat on by the WCW referees, including his own son. Yeah, that and must then, have been fun. And then there's this awesome spot where Jack Dunn comes flying in with a flying forearm and takes out Brian Hebner. With, <laughs> and that is, like, just incredible. I never thought I'd ever say the words of Jack Dunn flying through the air to take out someone on the floor. <laughs> that was an incredible spot. This had to be fun for them. You know, they, yeah. they get to watch these matches, and I'm sure some of them have training under their belt. And oh yeah, they have to take bumps and stuff like that, and they know how to take bumps. It's gotta be fun. Yeah. And then uh, Patrick starts complaining to Foley about like slow counts and the match still being over, and while he's complaining, Hebner charges at him with some sort of weird cross between a spear and a crossbody, <laughs> and he gets the pin off of that. So yeah, it's 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 definitely... Not a good match, but I enjoyed it for what it was worth. Uh, and then you have a... Uh, and like then we Pat- go right back to the WWF shitting on the CW. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, Patrick complains. Foley uh, puts, gets out Mr. Socko and gives him the mandible claw. And then we see this little clip of uh, a Tough Enough preview where they're at a um, drag bar. And some of the uh, the male wrestlers get dressed up as women and do some dances for the like the women athletes on the show. I'm sure that was fun. 2001. And then uh, had the see, recap of... See, they oh. missed the boat, because if you look at today's uh, reality show culture, Drag Race is still going strong. Or oh, yeah. Yeah, they should have yeah, just that transitioned been show. from that to uh, like WWF Drag Race instead. Starring Bob Holly's Drag Race. Um... Then they did a, a recap of a DD kidnapping Deborah on SmackDown. Uh, and then just Sarah and uh, Deborah just burying DDP, calling him a pervert and now, psycho. What is, it, uh, what is it about Diamond Dallas Page that Vince McMahon looked at him and said, You're a sleazy man that likes to kidnap women? That's well, you know what, what you are. The, the problem with DDP, which is the problem with a lot of WWE guys, is that Vince McMahon did not make him. And if he didn't make him, then he was going to break him. Or he was going to make him his own 
his own version of what DDP should be. I don't know why he went with the stalker gimmick thing, uh, but I guess he just didn't want it to be the same as the old DDP because that was a DDP that Vincent Mann did not have a part in developing. That's so. the worst. Um, that's um, yeah, but that's that. But we, there's enough historical evidence to suggest that that was what that, that was the case. Unfortunately. Um, then we move on to a match between two sets of tag team champions. And arguably these the worst two choices they could have made for their tag team champions at this point are of the APA against Plumbo Chuck Plumbo and Sean O'Hare. I don't like uh the APA had won the titles a couple of weeks prior to this from the Dudley Boys. And I don't know why the APA were the tag team champions. I know why, because they were seen as like locker room leaders, but it was such a a miscast in my mind. Yeah, you they were you could have the Hardy Boys here, or anybody here. Yeah, there was a lot more entertaining options available out there. But still, I guess the idea that APA are just like big locker room guys, so like bleed WWF through and through, even though Ron Simmons is a former WCW champion and all that stuff, but <laughs> we forget about that side of things. And they have a match which is even worse than the tag team match that opened the show. Yep, because... <laughs> We talked about Palumbo and O'Hare mm. when we were talking about the natural born thrillers back in like January, February. They're not bad. They're and just, they are literally the default creator wrestler with some hair and a tattoo. There's a lot of raw potential in both of them. They both have, if they both were given more training and guidance and given a lot more like experienced people to work with and not like forced like up the ranks too quickly. They both could have been really solid hands going forward. But we obviously know what happened to O'Hare, unfortunately, and Chubb Palumbo never reached, extended beyond a certain level. And this match is just, it's so devoid of any kind of psychology whatsoever. I hate that we're, we're what, four matches in and we've covered... A match that features two talents that are no longer living. Mm. Yeah, it's already unfortunate. And it's I, not it, even the last match that'll feature two talents. Yet. No. And it's also sad to say that out of the three matches we reviewed so far, the best one's been between two referees. Yep. So, <laughs> And that's considering one features Edge Christian, Lance Storm, and Mike Austin. Yeah. And when we say best, we mean most entertaining. Which is what you really should be aiming for anyway. But yeah, this match has just got no psychology in it whatsoever. Uh, it's just poorly laid out. There's no real fluidity between tags. There's like, there's not even really a good hot tag in this match at all. And then you have a um, Palumbo completely whiffs a super kick on Farouk, but Farouk goes down anyway. And then he gets decapitated by the clothesline from Hell by Bradshaw and the APA win. So if you're keeping score at home, WWF is now up three to one if you count the heat match. Say what you will, but uh, Bradshaw can deliver one hell of a clothesline. Mm. Oh yeah, that's the one thing that he can do. And the reason why he can do that is because he never pulls it pulls away from it. <laughs> it's it's that follow through. Yeah. You got to knock their head off for real. Yeah. So then you had uh, Vincent Mann and Chris Jericho have a talk backstage about what's going to happen, and then Stephanie and. The Alliance are backstage, and she talks about how she hates Chris Jericho. And then they give Kidman a pep talk before his match with X-Park. And that's what we lead on to. It's X-Park versus Kidman. 
Now, on a show where WCW is the total enemy, uh, X-Pac is the heel in this match, even though he represents the WWF. And uh, he actually is the first WWF star to lose. Uh, what is yeah. That? Because he sucks. As the crowd is more than happy to let you aware. The crowd was so more behind Billy Kidman in this match. Even though Kidman was like seen as a pretty cool, up-and-coming young star. Whereas X-Pac, everyone was just sick of X-Pac. It, was, it didn't matter if he was WWF, WCW, whatever. They just didn't want to see X-Pac wrestle at this point. They wanted him gone from the company. What do you uh, think that is, though? It's just he was around too long. He was overexposed. They hated the X-Factor stable. He hadn't changed his gimmick, really, in the last few years because he was the still hit just... The hit yeah. off a cracker. <laughs> yeah, there's, I think there's just a lot of factors in the fact that even though X-Pac was, at this point, not even 30... He was still just... He'd been around too long. God, he hadn't so, changed that's insane. Enough. He's not even 30 yet. I know, but it's just... He's been around for so long. I mean, he's been X-Pac since coming back to WWF in... Not, I mean, it's not yet. I know it's only three years. Nowadays, with people's gimmicks, you just beat them into the ground for five, six years at a time. But at this point in time, people were familiar with just people being around for a few years and then moving on or whatever because they would they would jump ship between shows or they would change their gimmicks up or they would like mix things up for a little while. Whereas X Park had just been X Park really for even though he wasn't in DX, he still basically was the only guy who still thought that DX was real and still existed at this point. Yeah, it's unfortunate that I think had the one two three kid been given a better name he could have just been that you know like a a fast-paced superstar but because that kid name kind of led you to think well you can't keep that forever and then well this the suck it thing is getting me over i'm just gonna do that ad nauseum we should have just transitioned something if it didn't it didn't have to be the same as one two three kid again it just had to be something different something that wasn't x Park. And in this match, this match was pretty solid, I thought. Out of the matches we've seen so far, it was probably the best, the most well-wrestled match. Uh, There's a lot of high-flying mixed into it as well. Uh, Kidman did this unique kind of sliding out of the ring and doing a bulldog to the floor, which I don't think I've ever seen before or since. I've definitely never seen it since. So that was an interesting one. Uh, You had... Kidman slingshotting into the ring, but he's caught with a roundhouse kick by X-Park. Uh, there's a thing where uh, Kidman uh, blocks a powerball attempt and does his own version of the X-Factor. But then X-Park then catches Kidman diving off the top rope into an X-Factor, and that's not the finish. Which I thought was odd, considering the fact that like, this was the first time they'd really fought each other, and one hit one with the finisher and they kicked out of it. Well, I think it was just a matter of... Neither one of those guys' finishers were all that impactful. Well, at least not the X Factor. Today's standards, shooting star press is nothing. But in 2001, it would put you away. So, Kidman blocked the Bronco Buster with a foot to the groin, which wasn't a DQ for some reason. And then, I guess there's the argument being that if you put your foot up there and the guy charges at it, then it's their fault. It's so, accidental. So you can't yeah. DQ the guy. Yeah. And then he hits his own shooting style press, which at the time, very few people were doing. So I, I'm probably, I don't know if I'm in the minority when I say this, 
Billy Kidman should never have done the shooting star press. Because he was so out of control doing that shooting star press. Uh, yeah. We'll, he we'll injured never talk a lot. Chavo, but he fucking knocked Chavo out. Yeah, he he was he injured plenty of people doing the shooting star press. Like for a guy who that was his primary finishing move, that was like he was not as as good at it as certain people should have been. I I compare it to like um Jinder Mahal not being able to use his move correctly. <laughs> like that um what was it called? The um the class. Yeah, the class that is. Yeah, the one where he essentially let go of it when he was trying to do it on Shinsuke Nakamura. Like, if you can't even do your... Fi- the finishing move is the one move you should be able to do at any point in time correctly. Yep. But, but yeah. And then you have uh, DDP gives a pep talk in the Alliance locker room. Uh, they treat him like he's a creep as well, so that's great. Uh, <laughs> and then we have a, a, a scene that so would not fly in 2019 between Tori Wilson and Stacey Keebler. Uh <sighs> Where essentially they just talk about how they're so much hotter than the WWF women, how Tori has big voluptuous breasts, how Stacey has the firmest ass in the entire wrestling industry, and how they plan on fucking the Hardy Boys after they beat uh, and Lee in the match later on. Well, I don't know what you're talking about. This promo got me very excited. <laughs> uh, imagine, just imagine how this you... would be received in 2019. You can't. I mean, people... Uh, to put it this into context, Raw Reunion featured no official women's wrestling match, and people were in an outrage. Mm. Because why women should be presented as athletic, you know, counterparts, and granted they should, And but can you imagine just like, just imagine this scene, but it's like Alexa Bliss talking about, uh, I'm going to take Seth Rollins to Becky Lynch. And it, it would not fly. It'd be, how dare you degrade these women? Then we move on to William Regal against Raven. I, I'm unashamed in my admission of the fact that I love everything about William Regal. William Regal is one of my favorite wrestlers of all time. I love his timing. I love his personality. I love his character work. Think he's a great wrestler, all of that stuff. This match was fucking atrocious, and it's Raven as well. And Raven's not bad either, but this match no. just this match was terrible. No heat around it because Regal had been a heel is essentially his entire WWF run. So having him in the babyface position was really jarring. There's so many wrestlers. Why holes. is he wrestling Raven on the pay per view anyway? It's just the idea that he's a WWF commissioner and Raven had beaten him up on a previous episode, so they wanted to do that instead. But it was just so, it was so not a match to feature on this kind of show. No, nah, they should have. Um, they should have just put this on heat and scrapped the Chavo match. And it's not even the fact that the heat, like for the actual shot match, and the fact that like people weren't really not sure who to cheer and boo for was the thing that really made bad. The actual wrestling just wasn't good either. Like, you had, like, this really awful-looking clotheslines, and you had this back at elbow where Regal, which barely connected, but Raven went down like he was shot. It was just... It was just really, really bad wrestling between both of them. Unfortunately, so I, I love both of these guys as well. 
Oh yeah, they're both like in, on on top form. These two are both excellent workers, but they just. By didn't the click. way, yeah. I'm looking on Wikipedia at the timestamps. Mm. Oh my god! Like these matches, the longest match we've seen so far was the opener tag match, and it was ten minutes and ten seconds. Well, there was a tendency to do shorter matches during the Attitude Era, but yeah, it's 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 definitely. Not a great sign of things to come. I know, but it's jarring when you consider uh views nowadays. Yeah, yeah, like nowadays no match goes under twenty minutes, I feel like. Which is it, a bad thing in itself, but I'm just saying it's completely jarring. Yeah. So he had a uh, Taz interfering towards the end, he suplexes Regal, and then Raven hits the even flow DET and gets the victory. So WCW is now level pegging, free free. Uh yeah, bad match. Potentially one of the worst regal matches I've ever seen. Um why did they pair Taz and Raven for like a year as a team? Because they're, they're both WCW. Did, can you give me no more context than just well? And don't complain don't complain at me. Complain at them. <laughs> Go back in time and Fucking like, uh... Raven is one of the greatest characters of all time, I think. Really I yeah, he was on the pulse of an entire generation, and they n- never scratched the surface. They just, again, he's just not a WWF product. That's probably that's the only thing that I can really just equate all this stuff to. These guys weren't created by WWF, so they had to be repackaged in WWF style of things. That's depressing. So after a backstage segment with Undertaker, Kane and Sarah getting a pep talk from Vince, we move on to a match that so should not have been on this card. I was going to ask you that. Why is this match actually on the pay-per-view? Because they were just trying to fill it with as many people as possible. It must have been six-man tag team match. The big show, Billy Cunn and the Intercontinental Champion, Albert. All right, that's the second time I've heard this. You are saying gun, right? Billy Gunn, yeah. I thought you, because twice it sounded like you said something else. You think I'm saying Billy Gone or something? No, I think you're saying Billy C word. <laughs> nah, I'm not. I'm not that mean against it. It's definitely <laughs> Billy Gone. I'm saying. Okay. If I'm calling someone a cunt, you know I'm going to call someone. A cunt. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> We've got no fear on this thing. This is not going to get monetized. Who gives a fuck? It's like. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I just. It sounded like you were saying Billy Cunt, and I just wanted to make sure you weren't. Yeah. Uh, but they take on um, Hugh Morris. Uh, I'm glad that they didn't go with the huge erection name. That was probably that. That seems like a Vince McMahon's sense of humor. Uh, you don't think? I know. Huge erection. Yeah, that's one of the things that Russo would have pitched to Vince, and Vince would have been laughing for the entire week. Uh, and so it's Hugh Morris, Sean Stasiak, and uh, Canyon. Oh, this match. <laughs> Well, who's on the other side? This is Albert pre-Japan. This mm. is Big Show pre-motivated like 2002 run. And Billy Gunn, who's hit or miss. Yeah, and then it's just three guys who nobody care about, really, on the WCW side of things. Just load, just a load of guys that used to... That really is their, their only unifying factor is the fact they used to wrestle for WCW. Nothing in common. Just like... 
I mean, what is your favourite, out of the many, what is your favourite moment of Albert's entire Intercontinental Championship run? When he lost it. Exactly. <laughs> uh, I think that he beat Kane. He in Kane. Yeah, I know. And not for nothing, Chris Canyon's about to go wrestle Kane in a cage in the next pay-per-view. Yeah. Uh, it's just yeah, it's just ridiculous. And then they had um, so the WCW. I think there was a pop when WCW came out to the WCW came out because they came out to Mr. Perfect's music. Oh, because it's um, Stacey. Yeah, Stacey had taken Mr. Perfect's face. They're like, oh shit, Kurt Hennig's here. Oh wait, yeah, it's just this guy. He would be. He would be there by uh, 2002. So oh, once again, 2002. Yeah, I know. We might have to continue this. I hope on, we do. Depends on what feedback. Again, Patreon. Do that, and then we might get 2002 wrestling on. 2002 uh, is a much better year. Do, do 2002. Like, yeah. Um. So we had like, I mean, it's just like just a nothing match. Just nothing really happens. They do. They basically get the heat on Billy Gunn for the entire time. A uh, Big Show doesn't get in this match at all. To wrestle, like he's always on the outside. He occasionally comes into brawl a little bit, but he he never gets tagged in. Uh, the crowd chants meet at Sean Stasiak at a certain point. Yeah, they do. <laughs> at least they weren't throwing meat at him. Nah. Um, the, sh- the finishing sequence is really, really shitty. You have this... Um, so he uh, gets hit by a fame, fame arser on um, Morris. But then he goes for the one and only Billy Gunn on his... his Which is essentially the Colossus. Yeah, essentially the Colossus. <laughs> um, but he's caught from behind by a reverse DDT by Stasiak. And then... Uh, Morris just like lands on him and covers him. Like he gets pinned by a reverse DDT. Um, and then straight after the match ends, so WWE's ones they're four free up. But oh no, you can't just have WWE win. You have to have Big Show come in and essentially just destroy all of them single handedly. <sighs> so nobody gets over in this thing, except Big Show. Yeah, who would have been the most logical jump? To the Alliance, because WCW started his career. I know, but... Hey, hi. But, by the way, when jumping over to the Alliance, they used zero logic. Oh, yeah, absolutely. They just chose people based on availability, really. Uh, okay. So, so now, uh, Shane peps up Booker T for the inaugural brawl. Now they're 4-3 up. And then Tajiri walks... Uh, Tajiri's backstage in Regal's office. Regal comes in all angry and... Sh- Tells tells Tajiri to get WWF back on track, and then we have Tajiri against Taz. I really enjoyed this match. Yeah, too. it was it was short, but I think the crowd there was there was something about Tajiri that the crowd really got behind. I think he could he's, have, he's he, a lot of fun. Yeah, he, he, I think he could have been a lot bigger deal than he ended up being. I know he's small, which was a bit an issue, but he would have been huge today. Yeah, he was he was really entertaining. Like his matches were really good. He had some really innovative offense. You really don't see anyone really employ a lot of the stuff that he does in his matches nowadays. Yeah, I miss like the tarantula. That, yeah, the tarantula, the handspring back elbow, all the kicks that he would use to throw in, and then you turn up with Taz, who is not as much like the complete opposite, but it's just like a suplex throwing machine. And he was a lot slower than he used to be at this point in time in his career, but he still throws a mean suplex. He was throwing to Jerry around the place. Like the fact that these two guys were pretty small meant that they looked pretty well matched going into it. I thought this was good. This was a good sh- showing. 
pretty good. Probably one of Taz's better showings for yeah, WWF, so, anyway. So, finishes, you get um, a green mist followed by the buzzsaw kick versus Jiri, pins Taz, levels it up for all now. Uh, then we have a backstage segment where uh, Matt Hardy's getting Jeff prepared for the um, his uh, hardcore championship defense, the only title match on the entire show. But then Matt Hardy's attacked from behind with a steel chair by RVD, and RVD says that Jeff will be next, and so that basically rules Matt out of being in Jeff's corner for this match. Uh, and then we have this funny segment where um, at WWF New York and Hardcore Holly is signing autographs. Uh-huh. I'm sure there was a, a long line for that one with Hulk oh, yeah. Holly signing autographs. Uh, and then a guy comes up to him wearing a WCW t-shirt. And Hulk Holly says, this isn't WCW New York, this is WWF New York. Rips the shirt off of him and chucks him out. It's like the crowd just gets super behind it. Yeah, I know. Who do you think that was? Like, you think that was like a worker? I think that's probably one of the writing team. Oh, yeah, that would make sense. Yeah, just somebody that says, oh, yeah, just chuck you in. There's, like, a, a plan in doing that. I feel bad for the guy. He was so out of shape and they had to rip his shirt off. So I, I, would, I would not like that job. Then we get to what is, I think, arguably the best match in the entire show. I don't think it's arguable. Okay, cool then. <laughs> I, I think we're on the same page there. Jeff Hardy <laughs> against LVD. I this, think this is a really, really, really good match. This would hold up today. Absolutely. RVD is great in this match. And RVD has always been a very hit and miss performer in my eyes. He's very... he He's... he's I don't want to say he's sloppy, but he's inconsistent. Like, all this stuff looks cool, but it's also very haphazard. But when you go up against Jeff Hardy, that kind of plays to your advantage. And RVD was... He looked in fantastic shape for this match. He was in such good condition. Hardy was looking really good as well. And the match was just a load of high-flying, innovative offense, fighting through the crowd, doing all the cool spots. Like, the crowd is behind RVD as much as they are Jeff Hardy because RVD is just so cool. Like, you see his rolling thunder, all these flips, Michael Cole saying that RVD is comparable to, like, the Matrix. Yeah, that's the very 2001 reference. Uh, Hardy gets a ladder out at one point, and he climbs to the top of it on the outside of the ring to try and jump on RVD. RVD gets in the ring, and with no table or anything to break his fall, he just pushes Jeff Hardy from the top of a 15-foot ladder onto the ramp. (laughs) And that's when JR gives the classic, how do you even learn to fall off a 20-foot ladder? It's it's segments like that, like spots like that that make me think, Wow, Jeff Hardy is still wrestling in 2019. <laughs> and doing it at a pretty, pretty decently consistent rate. He's cleared to wrestle for WWE, and RVD isn't. RVD well, is not allowed to wrestle for WWF. He's not cleared to compete for them. I think if Jeff Hardy were to go and do a documentary about his concussion symptoms, you probably wouldn't see Jeff Hardy get cleared. But uh, since he's not. just Jeff Hardy... Everybody's like, yeah, fuck yeah, he's got brain damage. It's cool, because he's Jeff Hardy. Like, so, it's wild. Yeah. So we see a lot of the, um, we see some of uh, Van Damme's signature chair spots. I mean, this is probably where some of the Jeff Hardy concussions come from, which is the uh, Van Daminator that knocks Jeff Hardy off the stage and onto the concrete below. Uh, 
RVD also does like a running drop kick and to Jeff Hardy's busted open by this point. But then they have like this DDT spot and RVD is one of the greatest sellers of a DDT of all time. Because he just bounces off He likes to off spike that. himself. Yeah, he spikes a lot. That, that was a huge spike. Uh, it's all one of the only times I ever saw Jeff Hardy do a German suplex in, in this match. And he lands RVD right on the back of his head. Uh, Hardy then misses the Swanton. RVD puts the hardcore title on Jeff Hardy's chest and then hits the five-star frog splash to win the hardcore championship. And RVD, along with Booker T, this is the beginning of them being the only two superstars that pretty much come out of this looking really good. Yeah, RVD holds that title for quite a considerable while. I think he drops it a couple of times to... I think he drops it to... um, Cut angle at one point for a short period, but then wins it back almost immediately. It's weird because it's like it's the era where there's still the 24 7 type rule is going on, but RVD pretty much consistently holds that championship pretty steadfast until uh, dropping it to the Undertaker. It was probably a Titan rule for a little while. Uh, All right, we're going to have RVD and Taker hold this thing, and it's not going to be 24 7. And yeah. then as soon as they put it on Maven, it was like, oh yeah, 24-7. Yeah, that's pretty much right. Uh, so Kurt Angle has a backstage talk with Vincent, man. I think this is the first real instance of Kurt Angle really getting... Like, Kurt Angle could have been this real breakout star off the back of this He pretty invasion. much was. I think. He was, really. But, like, this is the real title. It's been, it had been, I've been a heel for so long. I was amazed how much the crowd were behind him. Um... The two benefactors, or I don't know, beneficiaries of Triple H's injury, Kurt Angle and Jericho. Oh yeah, absolutely. Because Angle, for this entire, for the rest of this year until Austin turns babyface, Angle is a super mega babyface. Yeah, and I think he does as good of a job as he can do for it, but unfortunately, he there's something about him. There's something missing. As someone who's a huge Kurt Angle fan, like one of the biggest marks for him that you ever find, I, I, I'm willing enough to understand that there is something missing that means that he would never reach the same level as The Rock or Stone Cold in terms of popularity. But as a substitute, it was a perfectly capable substitute. Yeah. Uh, then we move on to... Okay, <laughs> let's, 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 let's talk about the women's revolution, shall we? Yeah. So, <laughs> like... Lita, Lita and Trish Stratus versus... Tor- uh, Tori Wilson and Stacey Keebler in the first ever tag team Brian Panties match. Uh, Mick Foley comes out to be the referee for this one because he has the power to do so. Because he can. Yeah, just because he can. Uh, uh, So the two WWE women come out and they fawn over Mick to try and get his favour. Trish comes out and then Lita comes out and gets a pretty big pop. Because Lita's always been pretty popular. Yeah, um... There's a lot in this match that I just want to point out. And Trish and uh, not Trish, Tori and Stacy really didn't know jack shit about wrestling at the time, huh? No, well they weren't. They never had to. I mean, I know, but it's it's abhorrently apparent in this matchup that they know nothing about wrestling. They were both standing on the apron at one point, touching each other, trying to see. Who's tagged in and who isn't and who's this and who's that? Yeah, well, I think 
I think that was actually just part of the idea of like them both not trying. They both wanted to avoid wrestling where they possibly could, but that was part of their gimmick. The idea that oh, these two are really kind of just valets, really, but they're going to wrestle for the pride of WCW against WCW women, WWF women, to say. Prove that they're. Well, why there. did this need to be a brown panties match? Why? Well, like, because they couldn't actually wrestle. Well, they could have had a. The men on this card had four minute matches. Well, this this is the well the reason. The logic behind it, at least according to what Melter was saying in the Observer, is the idea that the only one, the way they get Tory Wilson and Stacey Keebler over to the crowd is by getting them to strip down as often as possible, because that's how WWF booked women in the year two thousand and one. This, yeah, I will say this: Trish and Lita are still trying to wrestle. They do the uh, poetry emotion spot. Mm. They do Trish reverses. Uh, Tori's attempt to take off her top by doing a victory roll and then stripping Tori Wilson of her pants. Yeah. Like, what, what an athletic way to strip somebody of her pants. <laughs> I I think, like, it's still at this point in time, Trish is still green. Very green. And Lita has always been someone who I think is great at the high spots, but everything else that makes the match work, she really doesn't function well as. She's spot heavy, and I think that made her a legend because oh, yeah. she understood what wrestling was in a country in a company. Oh, especially in the Attitude Era. Especially yeah. in the Attitude Era, it was a spot heavy industry, and she benefited from that better than most. Especially because she did a lot of spots on men. Did Trish and Lita almost fall off the stage? Oh, uh, I didn't see that far back. Really, I don't think they they might have done, but because they're walking I, back and like. They're just, uh, they're walking backwards, and they literally have to pull each other in the opposite direction, because they're about to fall. And I mm. thought that was funny. Uh, yeah, but we might as well talk about the thing. So, obviously, they all end up topless. Well, apart from the bra, obviously, Ooh. but that's like, but that's to be expected. And then Trish and Lita team up to rip off uh, Tori's, all Tori's shirt and bottoms, and Stacey's bottoms as well, to win the match. Uh, Leah hits a one of her moon salts on Stacey, which Did almost connect. connected. Yeah, almost connected. Is <laughs> the probably the best thing. You Again, things you won't see in 2019-101. Um, why didn't Tori at least try to help Stacey when her pants were being removed? Well, she was just being. She was following the rules of the match. Like she was out of the match because she'd been tripped there. Oh, let's not get into rules. But, like, like at least help your friend or something. I don't know. Maybe she was just, like, she didn't want to get involved in the hope, in the, in the thought that maybe something really would spill out if she'd done it. Anymore. Oh, yeah. I'm really, really glad. I just like, don't see, I don't see people, like, again, it's like, I know these women are hot. They're all hot. But it's just the idea of, like, yeah, well, why don't we just, you know, check out some of their photo shoots or something along those lines? Why do they have to be wrestling while doing this stuff? And I'll admit, like, I think the overcorrection is a little much you know you can acknowledge I think, I the think, sexiness think, of alexa bliss yeah I think but i'm glad to... that they're not being stripped to the cheers of the public you know like i'm glad that's not a thing that uh, like there is room for a bit more exudes sexuality on both sides of the coin both for the men and the women's side I would agree but but it's the idea of like this is just exploitation yeah. So, so, gonna lead on to after just a few huddles 
for the brawl between the w- Alliance guys and Austin, saying he's going out there to kick someone's ass. Uh, we have the inaugural brawl. So th- there's a pretty awesome video package, which is pretty standard for WWE nowadays anyway. Uh, then we had Shane, Heyman and Stephanie come out, followed by Vince. Uh, just to emphasise the fact that this is about the McMahons and no one else. Uh, and then they do this really weird thing where they do alternate entrances. So it's a WWE or ECW guy comes out, followed by a WWF guy. Rather than having all the WWE ECW guys come out, and then all the WWF guys come out. Did you find that jewelry? I thought it was a little weird. But I think this whole thing was just messy. So a lot of the structure didn't need to make sense. Did you also find it jarring that they decided to bring Booker T out before uh, before DDP? <laughs> like Booker T, yeah, your world champion, and hitting champion. Le- yeah the leader and stuff like that, and he and DDP is the last one to come out for the alliance side of things. And then they all start brawling. Yeah, they all start brawling before Austin comes out, and then Austin does come out, and he starts fighting with the WCW guys and ECW guys, and the crowd are going crazy for it. The crowd is so behind Austin this entire thing. Uh, uh, I know. It's... Did they explain why Austin didn't want to be the old Stone Cold? He just thought that it was stale. I guess he just wanted to change. I mean, no, I mean like in storyline, like the whole thing. Uh, I want the oh, old Stone Cold. Well, why? Well, the... The idea was that Austin wanted to be well. He he'd changed, and he was like wanting to be. It hadn't been like a kiss ass, but like it's the idea of he was now a different guy, and he liked Vince, and he was friends with Vince, and he had grown into that sort of character of being more of a comedy guy. And it was the idea of like they wanted Vince wanted essentially Austin to come out and stunner him and be the old Stone Cold again. To, There's also this... a very interesting thing with Heyman, where they're all telling these great like rally speeches, and Heyman's just like almost praying with his head down. He's just like so rattled by everything that's going on. Mm. So, so there's like a lot of brawling in this match. It's hard to keep track of everything because there's there's ten guys fighting in it. There's a lot of stuff going on. Uh, crowd is hugely behind. Austin and Angle, I think, are the two big ones. Do you think Taker should have been linked so heavily to Kane here, or do you think he should have been uh, kind of the co-captain? No, I think think having Angle and Austin as the two big ones was probably the right way to go. I think Austin and Kane being as a tag team was probably the right thing for both of them at this point in time. Because even though Undertaker has a huge legacy behind him, at this point in time, especially in 2001, especially the way we discussed it earlier, he's not producing his best work. Yeah. And and it's very clear that he, his thing was with DDP at this point in time. So, and they were positioning Angle to be the next big champion. Like, your next big ultimate babyface. So, it's weird to me that they all follow the rules. Here. Mm. Oh they're yeah. All like, they get on the apron and they're yeah, oh, yeah, tag me. It's like why aren't they all just beating the shit out of each other all around the ring? So Undertaker actually does take some offense from DDP in this match. Just some, but at least it's something. That's the most he would ever take. Yeah. Uh 
Uh, I I don't know why, but because, again, it's my anti-coal bias, but it's the idea of, like, Booker T at one point rakes Austin's eyes, and Michael Cole says vintage Booker T. (laughs) Vintage Booker T raking the eyes. Well, it's vintage, Callum. Uh, I think this this match has, again, very little psychology. It's just getting all the guys in the ring and fighting each other every now and again. How many uh, new superstars are actually in the main event? Like, who for this match, it's their first main event? Probably, I mean, I think obviously on the WCW side, pretty much everyone. Uh, I guess the Dudleys, maybe, even though I think they've been there oh, yeah. for a while. Oh, yeah. oh, no, yeah, this is the Dudleys. I think this is Dudleys one of only two main events they ever had on pay-per-view. Because they have this, and they have that match with The Undertaker at the Great American Bash. But there's only actually, like, two new superstars in this match, right? Which would be Booker T and DDP. Yeah, this is the the first, like... Obviously not their first matches, but their first pay-per-view matches for these two. Uh, I assume this is probably Rhino's only main event. I think that's fair. Uh... This is pro- arguably only this is probably DDP's only main event as well. And no, I think that's a definite. Yeah. Which... Wait, did he do? He didn't no, he wasn't in the Survive series? series. No, he wasn't in the Survive Series. But... Really? No. <laughs> oh yeah, I guess because he gets replaced by uh one of the one of the two on the WWF side, right? Yeah, Austin and Angle. Oh, god, that sucks. <laughs> that's awful. So it eventually breaks down to like this huge brawl happening on the side. So uh, Austin starts to get um, he takes like a um, a knee bump to the um, ring steps, and so the idea is that he's injured his leg, and so he's kind of out of commission for a while. Uh, after they did this spot where he was supposed to be tagging into Angle, and uh, the referee didn't see the tag, and so everyone just started brawling with each other, and then you get just this big wild chaotic situation. So. Undertaker, for some reason, decides to last ride Charles Robinson. So does that. Because he's the big dog. No, he's the American Banner. Yeah, he's the graveyard dog. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Uh, Taker uh, hunts DDP out of the crowd. So DDP and Undertaker just leave, essentially. They just f- decide to run through the crowd. So that's the last we see of them. Uh, Kane chokeslams Steve on through the announce table before him he's suplexed through an announce table by um Bubba Ray. Rhino. Yeah, Bubba Ray and Rhino. Uh, and Jericho flies off the apron to deliver a big shoulder tackle to send Rhino through uh, a table. So that takes both of them out. And then you're left at the moment with Kurt Angle versus Booker T and Bubba Ray Dudley. And Angle just single-handedly takes out both of them gets a huge pop in the process of doing all that stuff. It's the angle slam on uh, Bubba, locks Booker T in the ankle lock, who kicks him into the referee, so the ref goes down with a ref bump. Uh, Vince chucks title in the ring, Shane intercepts that, and then Shane hits Vince over the head with a title. Angle takes out Shane, Angle takes out Bubba, Angle locks Booker T in the ankle lock again. Crowd is going absolutely insane for Kurt Angle. Booker T's tapping out. And Austin is getting the referee, dragging him into the ring, and then... Swerve, bro. Then Austin gets in the ring with the referee, stuns Kurt Angle, and rolls Booker T on top, convinces the referee to count the three, and Team Alliance wins the match. I think (sighs) it's just like, 
creatively, this is such a disappointment. Mm. It's just again, we know what we know how this ends essentially, and so to yeah. know that this is what they decided to do at this point in time, they might have thought, okay, get, making Austin, you're making your biggest star the star of the alliance, and maybe you're doing that to giving them more star power that they desperately need. But just knowing how this all ends up and how little, like how inconsequential the Austin heel turns end up being beyond the uh, inconsequential in the sense of like making anything entertaining going forward and, and really consequential in the damage it does to business overall. It's just such a huge misstep. They were so ready to have Austin as the big baby face again. They were so ready. Uh, is this the first time Kurt Angle does the straps? Um, I'd I'd, I'd say so because it's it's a babyface action that he does. Yeah, that what a cool element added to his character. Wow, there was already a sign in the crowd that said 316 Austin sold out." Uh, you so think that was a plant? <laughs> Uh, potentially, yeah. I assume they would have handed out a few signs like that. Uh, I think the Angle looked intense in this match, which in the previous, like, as a character before that, he was still, like, pretty much like a comedy Kurt, even though he'd been world champion, and he did think he was still seen as, like, the, um, the goofy, uh, Olympic gold medalist, whereas now he was an intense all-American babyface, and it really showed on this side of things. This this is the angle you learn to grow and love. Like in the ring, he's an absolute killing machine. But do it's just they, to get. Mm. Do they rightfully explain why Austin even wanted to join the alliance? Uh, I think I think their explanation for it is the idea that uh Vince wanted the old Stone Cold, so he obviously didn't appreciate what the previous Stone Cold was like, and so he decided, well, I'm just if. Now it's opportunity. I hate Vince again, and I'm gonna take him down, and I'm gonna do it with his family, that sort of thing. So it's the idea. He's it's essentially just a reverse of the uh, McMahon Austin feud, where Austin is now the 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 bad guy trying to run Vince out of business after like spending several months trying to get on Vince's good side and be the perfect friend to him and all that other stuff, and Vince didn't appreciate it because he wanted the old Stone Cold back. That's pretty lame. Oh yeah, but it 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 is all pretty lame. So that's invasion. That is the biggest pay per view outside of WrestleManias in WWF history, at least in terms of buy rights. Uh, I have to say it's a very uh, going back and watching it. It's a very underwhelming show. Very underwhelming. That is an under. That is an understatement, sir. That is. You saying it's a bad? You saying it's a bad show? It's a bad show. I mean, it's good. The the hardcore match is good, yeah. and the inaugural brawl is good up until the finish. Mm. It's it's a fun. The main event is fun until the very disappointing and deflating finish, and the hardcore title match is a very good match. The rest of it is ranges from mediocre to absolutely terrible. Uh, it certainly is not fit of the billing of a big. WWF versus WCW ECW show showdown. Uh, yeah, I'd I'd say it's definitely something that didn't live up to the hype. A bad show. Yeah. I'd say you have. I'd say, I'd say if you haven't watched it, watch it. 
it's it's it, you you may not enjoy every aspect of it, but it's a historical show. The Nexus was also a historical tag yeah. team match at their SummerSlam, but I wouldn't go back and watch that. I kind of no. I have to equate that to this because again, major storyline at the time in its context, uh, it was must see TV. This, but it does not hold up, and I think. In the pantheon of WWF, WWE, you could erase this and, like, everything still kind of stays intact. I, I, I have a tendency to agree with that, yeah. Uh, but that is the end of our July edition, 2001 Wrestling Odyssey, so I hope you have enjoyed it. Uh, Very next wrestling-heavy show, this show. Yeah, yeah I, I think we wanted to concentrate more on the, the big storyline, because now the invasion's happening... There's there is still news to discuss, but now we want to get a little bit more into the nitty gritty of the actual invasion storyline because that's like now that WCW is dead and ECW is dead and they're only part of the whole WWF family now. It's now really this is the big storyline going forward. This will basically guide us from now until Survivor Series, and then we only have one more month to deal with, and that will be based around. The undisputed unified championship, yeah, all the unifying titles, all the all the uh, clean up after the invasion. So, so I, th- I think there's still a lot more legs to go in this. That definitely don't fall off at this point because there's a lot no. of invasion talks happen. Because of... here's the thing: bad content always makes for good review content. Oh, absolutely, and that is what this is. Yeah, so we're going to be talking next month, obviously August, all the news and events happening, more talk about how the invasion and alliance angle is progressing, Uh, talk about SummerSlam 2001, a significantly better show if memory serves, to uh, invasion. But uh, there are bits and pieces that will get involved in that side of things. The return of Rock to pay-per-view, the Rock to pay-per-view, so that's good. Yes, um... um... Uh, we also see the beginning of the WWF's love affair with Let the Body Sit the Floor by Dreadic Pool. Uh, it, 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 as as um, like themes go, they could have been worse. There have been worse ones. But, you know, they're not, they're not the WWF's favorite band in the whole world, though. So no. that's one thing. Um, but yeah, that's uh, the end of this one. So just cap off with a few other plugs. So we've already talked about... Um, uh subscribing to the youtube channel and how you can support us monetarily obviously you want to check out smartcatmoment.com for all the articles and news and great other stuff that's going on on the website so if you come from there to watch this or anything along those lines just let us know you can check us out obviously through youtube that's our primary source but then there's also a few itunes or stitcher spotify all the other platforms we're on Wherever you're seeking us, just leave us a review, leave comments below, and any, all that engagement would be great. Let us know how you thought about this, how you're enjoying the journey so far. Let us know any, if you uh, wanted 2002. Yeah. You might have to pay for that one. I have to put that you one behind a paywall. Put that <laughs> one behind a paywall, maybe. But um, yeah, so that's all good stuff. Uh, you can follow, join us up with the uh, Mega Maniacs as well on Facebook. That's just another platform where to bring all the wrestling fans together to discuss things, do like shows, like live commentaries on shows, things that are going on. Uh, we just finished the Sexy Superstar Tournament, so we can't plug that. But if you haven't seen the results and 
who won, check out our videos that we previously done on those. Uh, Rob, do you want to throw some stuff out there? Yeah. Uh, for me, you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at DudeFelice. If you're curious about what is coming next here on the Spark Out Moment podcast feed, that, of course, will be the hot tags on Monday, which will feature a Smackville review, as well as the plethora of news that we've gotten over the last seven days. So I'm sure the hot tags will be a pretty big one. Following that, it will be the mailbag, which I believe will be the main event of next week. And then, well, hold on to your hat because it's show after show after show. So get ready. There's a lot of content, like Alan mentioned previously. Hit that notification bell and subscribe. And as far as anything with me personally, check out WrestleZone.com and the WrestleZone Daily. Check out eWrestling News, The Ring Report, uh, TimeKillerApparel.com. Check out all the weekly articles, and I believe that's it for us. Yeah, I'll just I'll just throw out there for Tony's sake because Tony is the head honcho at Smoker Moment to also check out Fanboys Anonymous as well. So find that, check out his website for all the geek culture content. Follow them on Facebook and Twitter and all the other social media platforms as well, and check out their videos on YouTube. Uh, for me personally, you can follow me on Twitter at Weekmeister14. And yeah, that just does. Just about does it. So, thank you very much for listening, and we'll see you in August for another edition of 2001 Wrestling Odyssey. And this has been another Smart Cat moment, and we are being counted out. <laughs>